this temple crew has a plan And they begin by digging into those two scoops In every Kellogg's pack Two scoops or Keep them coming back for two, two scoops Of plump juicy raisins in Kellogg's Raisin Bran Hooked up and in command They're working now, but they're thinking how they lost And Golden Blake's a brand They're turning back again for two scoops Of plump juicy raisins in Kellogg's Raisin Bran Welcome to the third episode of the Two Scoops Podcast. Not just the only podcast with 333% effort, but the only podcast that can shake up the picture, the lizard mixture, with your dance on the eventide. I think maybe the most apt way to introduce our duo this time around, I'm Jordan Breen, and I alternate between being the Simon LeBond and John Taylor of this outfit, and along with me, the lower key, but much more skilled, less intoxicated of the bunch, the real musical metronome. Of two scoops. It's Mr. David Bixenspan, the Roger Taylor of our bunch. Bix, we're going deep today on Duran Duran. Deep as the glass splinters that lie so deep in your mind. Why why Duran Duran? This came about very organically as we were recording another two scoops, but when that inspiration hit, what made you think we gotta we gotta do an entire episode on Duran Duran? Well, first of all, I don't like how you decided that you get to be both Simon and John. Well, I mean, I didn't. I didn't take all the glory. I didn't give myself Nick Rhodes. I didn't. I didn't paint myself as the prettiest of the bunch. Sure, sure. I got to be Roger. That's not too bad. At least you didn't make me Andy. I. Uh, <laughs> well, at very at, well. Imagine if you called me the Warren Cucciarillo of. Uh... You're you're the uh, you're you're the least viced of all of us, and you're probably the most, like I said, musically skilled. So I thought Roger Taylor was probably most appropriate. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I gave you I gave you all the credit for being both a a man of greater moral fabric than myself, greater virtue than myself, and overall greater technical ability than myself. I think, as we discussed Duran Duran throughout the show, uh, Roger Taylor's brilliance comes out time and time again, and it probably owes in part to the fact that he is very much the most sober and really only sober member of Duran Duran. Sure. So I'm actually I actually don't remember what was the moment we decided now that I, now that you mention it. We were we were pre-recording, and I'm not sure how it initially came up, but we were we, we ended up. I believe it was um, we were doing the second show. We'll, we'll if you haven't checked it yet, we'll, we'll law and order action, ranking all the junior second chair ADAs. Maybe you saw Jill Hennessy's retweet. How stoked were you, Bix? I was pretty stoked about that. Um, also. Ken, although I just gave you praise for your own technical ability and really all the machinations of getting this whole podcast set up have been you. You're doing the heavy lifting here. But um, me, I see I see weakness in people. I see vice in people. And I saw Jill Hennessy's Twitter. I knew not only did somehow she have less followers than me, despite the fact she's been on Law and Order and Crossing Jordan syndication for years, and she has apparently like a fledgling country music career, which is quasi successful. Um, she she clearly ran her own Twitter, and I knew I knew she would see us big up in her and and see your obvious love for her on the hierarchy of second chair ADAs as Claire Kincaid, and she came through for us, Bix. She came through in a big way. But what did that have to do with Duran Duran? Um, we were uh, preparing to do the uh, second episode, and I have no idea. Maybe we were talking about like musical interstitials or something like that for the episode, and yeah. somehow Duran Duran came up, and 
um, we we had a very nice bonding experience. We knew we've had previous conversations about our love of Depeche Mode, so uh, <laughs> I would only anticipate that we would we would share a love of of Duran Duran. We'll get into. Uh, I'm curious what your genesis and jump off point with Duran Duran was, but you know there's obviously going to be a kind of kinship there. But we were talking about uh, the best Duran Duran tracks, and you said, "But do you know what the best Duran Duran track is?" Okay. I said, well, right. I said, well, personally, it means a lot to me, but I love the chauffeur. However, David Bixon's fan, I feel your mind shape. And I very much know that we were both talking about the extended night mix of Girls on Film. Well, night version, because those weren't remixed. Those were played live in the studio, which we're going to get to later. So we we instantly we we had a very uh, uh you know a telepathic James Hydrick level common ground there instantly you know I knew what mattered to me but in terms of talking about like but you know what the best shit is we both just intuited that we were talking about the same thing and from there I think we just kind of maybe on a lark said eh, like let's do a full Duran Duran episode but quite frankly. Um, We've talked about in the first two episodes and uh, the bonus show where you broke my brain and really scarred me forever by mm-hmm. making me watch the Bernie Miller show um, that, you know, the whole point of this is to be able to take these conversations we have and monetize them and share them with the masses. And it's not just that, like, it's exciting to, to share these things with other people. It's the idea that like we get something out of it too. And, you know, even if maybe it broke my brain to research James Hydrick and like really made me feel some type of way. And even if you put, you probably took literal years off my life, making me watch the marital rape episode of Barney Miller. This is the kind of week where I spent four days just getting intoxicated and watching Duran Duran videos and listening to Duran Duran albums and reading old weird press clippings over the last 30 years. And it it goes so far beyond solidifying my love for Duran Duran. It's like, like this, this whole week has made me love Duran Duran infinitely more. Like, I don't know what it's been like for you, but like, it's actually been incredibly exciting for me going back and, and digging into this stuff and taking a band that like I knew I loved, but finding like new and insane things about them that only doubles down on the reasons I intrinsically love them anyway. Right. And I was thinking about as far as the, you know, the reasons I was thinking this would make a good show. And there are a lot of things. There's that kind of, quietly in the last couple of years now they've suddenly had this big turnaround as like the older artist that like teens and tweens are into like i went to uh i went to a couple shows on the i guess do we call it the last tour or the current tour because i think they still have like one or two shows coming and... well I mean, dude this is actually part of like what's cool about duran duran is um i was reading an article that actually quite charmed me. It was like an Associated Press article that came out before they did Ottawa Blues Fest uh, in uh, my fine nation's capital. And they were basically talking about what it was like for them just starting to crack the festival circuit. You know, there's some other bands of their ilk, like The Cure had been on the festival circuit for a while. You know, I've seen The Cure like twice. 
uh, just on the festival circuit. Right. Duran Duran is doing a lot of festivals now. Yeah. So it's, but, but I mean, this is a a fairly recent advent. You know what I mean? There's a certain kind of act that you associate with the festival circuit, but slowly and surely there's more and more old acts that realize the, you know, the viability, especially in major cities. You know what I mean? Like if you go to Coachella, Oceaga, or, you know, like some of these festivals, um, the people you're seeing, it's not it, like it's not just kids with glow sticks on and covered in, you know, uh, racially inappropriate headdresses and face paint. Like there's moms and dads who have like the NASCAR headphones strapped onto their kids while they carry them on the shoulders so they can watch whatever act from 10, 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah, like they're just cracking the festival circuit. And within that article, they actually talk about finding inspiration in Kendrick Lamar and Kanye West and I believe Simon LeBond specifically mentions like oh like we you know we would we would listen to a Kanye West track and be like oh did you hear that Kanye snare like <laughs> like these dudes just never lose it and like and and you know I, I can't speak for you on this tip but one of the things that makes me love them so much more going through this and maybe it has something to do with the way I first found Duran Duran but I love that they are just like weird, horny old dads. They were weird, horny, young, beautiful men. And now they're still just a bunch of friends who are weird, horny old dads and make weird, horny music. Yeah. And what I was saying before you bogarted that entire conversation. <laughs> as I'm as I'm want to do. I yeah, of course, that's your charm. That's that's not my charm. It's my it's my deficit. There are already people listening wanting to un you know un uh, undonate on Patreon due due to my terribleness. Continue, Bix. <laughs> so I went to two sh- two shows on the most recent tour, one at Barclays Center, and one which was sort of kind of a festival show. Not exactly. It was indoors at the theater at Madison Square Garden, headlining uh, WNEW Fresh Fest, and. Here, here's your lineup at Fresh Fest. They're headlining. Adam Lambert's the uh, co-headliner. Yeah, all, who else do they have? Ra- Rachel Platten. Um, why am I drawing Blake on their name? Also, the, the 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 guys from New York that did that song with Christina Aguilera. Uh, <laughs> Redman's from New Jersey. I remember Dirty. Okay, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on these people. Anyway, it, and maybe like one or two other artists. And as up as the, because it was a, you know, it's a mixed audience because of the, it's a kind of like a top 40-ish slash it's alt contemporary type station. Yeah. So it's like, you know, mix of adults uh, of different ages, you know, so you got like your middle age and you got people about our age and you got your teens and tweens. So it's a very mixed audience, but obviously the teen and tween girls are very into Adam Lambert. Even though I never get the dynamic there because it seems like they're really like into him, into him, even though they know he's gay. But anyway, as there's into, something to be said for unattainability. Sure. But as into Adam Lambert as they were, they were way more into Duran Duran, like singing along with everything and standing the whole time. And just, they were positively sedate by comparison for Adam Lambert. And that really opened my eyes that it's like, wow, like they're. They've really come full circle. I mean, in every way, because not popularity-wise, being considered a dated 80s act, critically, 
and there is a lot to digest here with them. And I mean, so where do we go? Where do we go first? Well, I mean, I think you you get to the heart of one of the reasons why we really want to talk about this, and it's the fact that we both love Duran Duran, and there is such a casual misunderstanding. You know, I you know. I live in a big city. I'm of a certain age. I'm of a certain scene. A lot of my friends are, you know, day job laborers, musicians by night and, you know, write for music zines and take their music knowledge very seriously. And, you know, they'll be like, oh, like, what what do you think about rap music, Jordan? But none of that shit matters. I'm like, I love Duran Duran. They're one of the sickest acts. Simon LeBon is an insane lyricist. And people look at me and are just like, what? Dude, Duran Duran, like, they're like a girls band, like, from the 80s. Like, what? There is, I think, such a woeful misconception about what this band is all about. And if you're the kind of person who has no, like, I can't think of too many more bands where if you haven't actually listened to them, you would so profoundly be missing the point. Duran Duran is like the like a the Veronica Mars or something like that of music. Like here like you know what I mean like a teen TV show which is at, you get you kind of get where I'm going with this that's actually a quality well, obviously, as someone that's never seen Mars, but no, like I feel, I feel where you're coming from because the thing is, you know, like, and as we'll get to in talking about this, like, dude, 1983 hits. They make the motherfucking bomb theme. We're going to talk about A View to a Kill. We'll talk about Nick Rhodes getting embarrassed by the, the famous Bond composer, dude. It's like they're literally the biggest thing in the world for a – like like think about this. In all walks of life, like how many things are there? There's like you know, uh, politics. You could be a sovereign leader. Sports, you could be a great athlete. Music, you could be – a huge musician. There was literally a year where these five people, <laughs> these five people were literally the biggest musical act on earth. You know, like they had, it didn't go like as long and maybe it wasn't as profound. So it wasn't quite like Beatlemania, but do you feel me on this? There was literally a year. There's it's incontrovertible. 1983. What is bigger than Duran Duran Bix? Actually, they wait, did the- what year did Thriller come out? <laughs> Don't. We'll get to an episode where we make fun of my mother. Shouts, Gina Breen. I see you, baby. I love you. Don't make fun of my mom right now in a secret, covert way. Seriously, though, 1983, correct. Nothing is bigger than, like, like Michael Jackson's huge and shit, but people knew Michael Jackson was huge. Boom. Duran Duran hit the scene. We'll talk about the, the impact of Hungry Like the Wolf as a video. But like, literally, they okay, have... November, well, it's November 82, so... But you know what I mean. Yes. They had a 12 to 18-month period, at least, where they were the biggest musical phenomenon in the entire world. This shit ain't by accident. This is not this is not smoke and mirrors. They're not Falco. <laughs> yes. This is not this is not like some weird synth jam that like happened to be in a movie and these dudes made some incredible music and as we'll talk about continue even as strange horny old men 
to continue to turn out really good music in, in the modern day and even like throughout the 90s. So before we get to that, I guess we'll go through a little housekeeping first. Tell tell all the people how they can uh, get at us, give us some money, and help us buy, uh, in your case, more Duran Duran vinyls. I understand you have quite the little collection going, Bix. Do you want to show off a little bit? Uh, let's see. Do we do we look if you want if you can buy this at Amazon? <laughs> that's that's what I'm thinking. All right. So if, if you are a regular customer of Amazon, or if you don't even use it that much. Whatever. When you want to shop at Amazon, if you want to support Two Scoops, use our Amazon referral link instead, which is tinyurl.com slash Two Scoops Amazon. You go there, add the stuff to your cart, check out as normal. You don't pay anything extra, but Amazon gives us a percentage off the top just as a thank you for bringing them your business. So, let's see. What should I look up? Should I just look up Duran Duran Vinyl on Amazon? Yeah. See what's available. Okay, I mean, there's going to be some reissues and stuff, and the, honestly, the reissues aren't that good. But let's see. I like that you're here to be the uh, the elitist vinyl snob. I know. Well, I'm I'm not I'm not super elitist vinyl snob. You're I'm excessively. Not, I'm not talking about warmth. <laughs> you're excessively elitist and vinyl snobby. Let's see. See, it's Amazon. Sir, oh, it does the it does the whole thing like Google does now, where they like they treat you like you're an idiot. <laughs> I don't pull stuff. So let's see. Uh, yeah, I might have to get deep. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn off Prime. Or no, I can't turn off Prime. I can't. I can only do Prime only. Let's see. Uh, you know, I'm just gonna scroll down a bit. Let's see what comes up. Uh, what what are what are our DD selections on vinyl? Okay, like okay. Well, I'm looking for non Prime stuff and stuff that's not Amazon provided photos. I figure mm-hmm. is the best place to start with. Mm-hmm. You can get a copy of Arena, their famous live album from 1984, which is fantastic. Uh, various uh, sell- ver- various versions, various sellers on vinyl from 4.99 and up. Plus, also, space. if you if you get Arena on DVD, Bix, uh, I, I, mean, I don't know if this is like too deep. Um, if you get Arena on DVD, do you get like every Duran Duran video up to then? Oh, I don't know. Well, do you get videos along with? Because I mean, obviously, we got to get to some DD videos because it's a, an essential part of. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, uh, what makes them such icons? But, but does the DVD version of the arena of the arena video? Yeah. come with the music videos up to. I don't know. I don't, I'd have to look in. Chance it. Just just go buy it on Amazon. Use the promo code. Oh, here we go. The original Capitol Records version of Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Nineteen different sellers. Six forty six plus and up plus shipping. Boom. It's a very nice sounding uh, record. Underrated album. We'll talk about how Critic oh, savaged yeah. it, but We're talk about how Critic savaged almost everything after uh, Rio. New Moon on Monday. Are you kidding me? You're gonna shit on Seven the Ragged Tiger? Are you kidding me? Have you seen this video? I haven't even seen the 18 minute video that you've said exists for this thing. I, outlandish, the kind of things that people said. Which is not on YouTube anymore album. either. I, I made sure that's one of those things where it's like this is gonna get pulled at some point. <laughs> so I made sure to see. If, All right, rest of house cleaning, Bix. But yes, I light my torch and wave it for the new moon on Monday. Yeah, if anything you want to get from Amazon, whether it's Duran rela- Duran related or otherwise, tinyurl dot com slash two scoops Amazon. Buy some Duran Duran stuff, and we will uh, take a look at it on the air when we see the 
Amazon referral stuff if there's some Duran Duran in there. What if someone wanted to hear me emote very deeply and become very upset while you try to put, you know, tremendous amounts of emotional, psychological scars on me via 1970s cop procedural? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, for that, they could go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash T-W-O scoops. That's patreon.com slash two scoops spelled out. Again, patreon.com slash T-W-O scoops. We got two Patreon reward levels, a dollar a month. You just get our thanks and you also... Hang on, hang on. Yeah, we need to do the thanks. Have you have you not Actually, seen... wait, did I put the thanks in or did I only do that for my other picks? You put the thanks in, but have you not seen the effort that I have put into this Slack account? Oh, you've Don't been putting say a lot of effort just... into... The people who've donated $1, not that they exist because everyone is dope and has donated $5 so far. Yes, Because all of our listeners are you're some bad, bad motherfuckers. You get the Slack. And I'm going hard every single day. You're getting you're getting massive videos, old commercials. We're we're talking about what the best placebo songs are, deep reviews of Donnie Darko. We're going hard in the slack every day, Bix. Yes. If you're a Shard Dog listener who's ever wanted to uh, know what it's like to text with Jordan, now you get a chance. That is that is the dynamic that I try to bring to the table. I try to. I try to uh, wake up in a in a still drunk heap of humanity, get on the slack, and let people know how much I regret certain parts of my life. Yeah, if you're if you are a sure dog person, if you are a mixed martial arts bit of the folk, and you've ever wondered what it's like to get a, a, a brutal insight into my life, the two scoop slack is the way to do it. You can watch me come apart as a man for only five dollars a month. Five can technically one, but don't be. No one wants to be the first. You don't want to be the first person to be the one dollar donor. Am I right? I would. I would agree with that. Sure. You know what I mean? Like literally. If you do it, we appreciate your money. Yes. I mean, it's it's all the same. But know that you're literally not as good as everyone else that's donated so far because everyone else has gone full five. But yes, if you want to uh, see Jordan libel me about uh, matters involving Minnie Mouse and stuff like that. Then you get that at every donation level. And then at $5, you also get the weekly, uh, comp, uh, what do we call this? The bonus podcast. I couldn't talk for a second. The first one we did uh, last week, I introduced Jordan to an episode of Barney Miller titled, very unfortunately, Rape, which is about <laughs> a marital rape. And it goes downhill from there. Yeah, it is... Um... Have you like I mean this I, I mean this with all glibness aside, have you thought about our recording of the first bonus show since we've done it? Like have you reflected on that at all? In what sense? Because, um, like <laughs> I actually went back and and like went and read articles about the episode and stuff after that. Because you wanted me to come in cold. You yes. know, you okay, well, not- I know where you're going with this too. So I've like gone back and like looked at things and like I've really like considered it and I've like thought back to to what it was like to record it and watch it in real time. And like it's it's actually like really, you know, like not to be twee and and maudlin, but like it's actually like really fucked up. And I actually like really hate that you made me watch it. 
like I'm not like scarred by it. Like I'm not like having nightmares or anything, but like I hate knowing like I'm going to see Abe like eventually one of these days for real, Abe Vigoda is going to die. And even though his face isn't even in that episode. Yeah, that's not from when he was on the show. This is that's what left. I mean. That's what I mean. Like, but it's not going to matter. Like he's going to die for real. And I'm be like, oh, Abe Vigoda. Remember Barney Miller? And I'm like, oh, 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 oh boy. Oh, boy. And that's all I'll think. And it's it's really it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to ask for me to carry that burden. You know? Sure. I'm um, willing to bet. I'm willing to bet they don't show that one too, too often. Syndication. Yeah. Uh, now, in looking this up, did you find the thing? I forget. I pulled one up, I'm not sure if this is the right one, that there's a book about rape and how it's treated in primetime TV where they clearly did not see the actual episode. No, I did not. What what, what have I missed? Let me see if this is the right one. I forget how I was alerted to this in the first place. Great. Let me let me be further traumatized. I thought I thought we were done recording this episode, but yeah, no, let me let me take some more exposures here, Bix. What forgot, do you got? No, I had forgotten about this. Um Put some more there, scars okay, on my I'm soul. Sure body. I found the right one. This is rape on rape on prime time, television masculinity and sexual violence by Lisa M. Cook, Cucklands, and I'm sure there's someone out there who's like, <laughs> this girl writing about rape cultures. Name is Cuck. Why do you have to make me laugh out loud? Reveal me to be the kind of scumbag that would laugh about something like that. Anyway. She has an entry about it in her book, and clearly she only read the script, which is not as bad because you don't have the inappropriate weird laugh track breaks. But oh, that's uh, that might truly be the worst, the worst part. Like if <laughs> if you wonder how, like that that accounts for most of the length of our first bonus podcast, the sheer fact that we have to stop every time there is a a horrifically inappropriate laugh track about something that is both neither a joke and horrifically upsetting about marital rape. And when you say neither a joke, we're talking about lines that literally are not not structured to be jokes. Remember, (laughs) remember when Yemena wants to go gambling? Yeah. God, it's it's also the most racist. I never realized how racist Barney Miller was till you showed me this episode. It's horrific. Not only is it an episode about marital rape, it it totally exposed me to like I've seen. You know, I'm not like a Barney Miller expert. I haven't like gone, but I've probably seen like a good dozen episodes prior to the marital rape episode. I just never realized like, oh, this is also horrifically racist. It's a 70s sitcom. But, but to like but, but to like the zenith, you know what I mean? Like it's on 11. Sure. But <laughs> yes, you can hear that um, if, if you donate $5 or more a month at patreon.com slash two scoops pod. No, excuse me. Patreon.com slash two scoops. God damn it. It happens. It happens. And it's, it's linked on two scoops pod.com. If you go to two scoops pod.com, it's linked on the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. What is up with me today? Sidebar. I'm becoming I Canadian. Like it. The, the sidebar. The sidebar. Drink some curs after beating Frank Mir. Uh, 
What was I saying? Oh, so yes, it's on the sideboard. There's a link in every post. So if you don't remember which variation, it is, I mean, it's just go to the website. You'll see the button and stuff. So, and of course, that's twoscoopspod.com. Uh, let's read off our uh, patrons, and then we actually don't know what this week's patron Patreon only show is going to be, but it's going to be sure a surprise. It'll be, it'll be dope. Whatever. Yes. I mean, I let you, I let you, I let you get revenge on me for every time I've told you licentious stories about taking bartenders home or doing weird things in the privacy of of my own uh, abode. You you got me back a million times, fold. You broke <laughs> you broke the bone in my brain. The bone in your the brain. The extra that makes one, you like the one that makes you like rap music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that one. Okay, here are our initial uh, crop of patrons. We've got. Joe Libu, Jack Chambers. Uh, I don't know if this is the whole name or just a username because it's all one word. Kylan Kamalt, Kyla Kamalt. Kyle, I'll go. I'll go with Kylan Kamalt. Kamalt. I'm gonna let you screw all these up. I'm not even. I'm not even taking endeavors. Daniel Dillon, Will Buscombe, uh, Will Hofer, Adam Luce. Bradley Dawson, Sean McIsaac, Chris Nava, Corey Henderson. Shout out to my homie Corey Henderson. He is an ill musician. Not only is he super sick at the bass, he is super sick at the tuba. Check out uh, his band Sports Fan and check out his band Dinosaur Island as well. Corey Henderson is the G. Continue. If you say so. Uh... Mike Riordan formerly for, is formally correct. I don't know. The coach. Say. Yeah. A, a bloody elbow. Formerly, formerly, I guess, a bloody elbow.com. Follow the man on Twitter. Learn how to shoot a double leg. Become a more, become a more effective street fighter or amateur wrestler. Sure. Joshua Holland and Jonathan Weatherby. Shout out to the homie John P. Weatherby. All time under my heart. Um, one of those weird instances, I don't know if you have anyone in, this, in your life, Bix. Um, I went to high school with John Weatherby every day from 10th grade right up to the end of 12th grade. We never interacted, never had a class. Oh, wow. You're speaking American all of a sudden. <laughs> really? Yeah, you said 10th grade. You said didn't say grade 10. You said oh. 12th grade. You didn't say grade 12. I didn't realize that was like an American-Canadian divide. Now I'm oh, going yeah. to be like oh, – yeah. Now I'm going to be like super conscious of it. I mean the other thing is I didn't grow up in Ontario, so I won't talk about grade 13. Or anything like that. Which, by the way, Bix, this is a little inside. This is the kind of stuff you might get in the slack. We were talking off air about a particularly uh, strenuous breakup that I may have had at some point in time. I once got in a screaming argument with a very recent ex-girlfriend when we were watching The Wire. And <laughs> this is absolutely fucking insane. I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. This is so embarrassing. All right. So, Bix, have you seen all The Wire? Uh, I respectfully decline to answer on the grounds that may incriminate me. Okay, that's 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 totally fair. I don't blame. That's that's a good the the avenue we're doing, the kind of podcast we're doing. That's a good thing to plead the fifth on. I feel you completely. That might be something we got to get to at some point in time. Anyhow, for anyone who's seen season four of The Wire, obviously it involves middle school students, and I I was watching with ex girlfriend and. We we got in an argument that basically hinged on how old middle school students, like how old the quartet 
of boys in season four would be in the wire in the middle school system. And I was trying to explain to her that the reason that we were off by a year and why we were dissenting is she grew up in Ontario where like there's grade 13 and it's different, but she <laughs> it turned into like, it turned into like a near fist fight all over uh, the existence of grade 13. Now, if I remember Toronto. correctly from uh, the ed- my education about Canadian school systems that Joe Grassi gave me, grade 13 is the thing where you graduate from high school, but you want to get your grades up for college, so you go back to high school for some awful reason? Not, like, quite. Like, it doesn't, like, exist anymore, I don't think. But, like, oh, it was, God. like, a thing in Ontario forever. I know my cousins on, like, my cousins who, like, went up here, like, they had to, go, like, go through grade 13. But, like, I <laughs> – my my ex-girlfriend, she was, like, a grade 13-er. She had gone through the school system in Ontario at a time where, like, that was a thing. And so her <laughs> her conception of what middle school was was off of mine by, like, a year. But she was – very intoxicated would not listen to like why 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 we dissented on on how old these kids would be in the wire and then it turned into a whole thing about like us researching like the maryland school system on wikipedia and like how old kids are in middle school it was a very traumatic experience Duran Duran memory what magnetizes you to this band that we've decided to do this deep dive on what I imagine is you know like you digging into your sister's cassette tapes or somehow you stumble upon a television set that's showing the hungry like the wolf video what's the deal how did it happen for you I'm trying to think how much like 80s Duran Duran exposure I would have had and for me it probably goes back to like wedding album which I'm guessing is maybe similar for you, given we're in the same general age range. But I was... I I feel like, can I I quickly say that in a a classic contrast of our personalities, I feel like our Duran-Duran Genesis stories are going to kind of be different. (laughs) Well, I know part of your Duran-Duran Genesis story, kind of, so. Or potentially, I don't know. No, wait, it's, no, it's actually a friend of yours, Janet. What the hell? Oh, well, we'll get to shout-outs to my girl Caramel's coming up later with the weirdest, uh, uh, a weird Duran-Duran uh, artifact as Sorry, well. Sorry, my brain's just not working right now. Uh, the extra bone, I know how it goes. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm doing a little extra work to get the horns hidden. So, uh, it, I was not, like, super into Duran-Duran. Like, I was much more on the Depeche Mode tip. Like with my sister's stuff for a while. And for me, I guess Duran Duran Love is more of a recent dish thing. 
like last 10 years or so. And from there, it was just kind of going with all the same stuff you would expect. You know, Rio, then some Seven the Ragged Tiger, the debut. Then it's like, oh, wait, wait a second. I'll, big Thing's good. Why do people think Big Thing is bad? Wait, wait, people think Seven and Ragged Tiger's bad? <laughs> wait, wait, what? So really a, a, a late career appreciation in your case. Sure. Yeah, I would I would say that. So I was probably – I have two distinct memories from going – from the time I was probably six to the time I was probably ten. So 1993 to 1997-ish. Um, my I like how you said it's going to be different and then you start talking about the time period where the wedding album came out. <laughs> but it's, it's – we'll get to why it's different. So I have two distinct memories from the fact that for probably that, that four-year period, I went to my maternal grandmother's every lunch hour during school. One, uh, so so unconditionally, I went and like a good East Coaster, I typically ate fried bologna and toast, real, <laughs> real, real proper East Coast shit. And then I would go sit in her den and typically I would watch The Price is Right. And there's two distinct memories I have from these lunch hours. One, I remember not appreciating world events not appreciating the you know enormity of terrorism and being incredibly upset as a young child when the Oklahoma City bombing happened and it preempted prices right and I was absolutely furious. I was like seven or eight. I just who the fuck is Timothy McVeigh and what did he do with Bob Barker? And this is absurd. I hate this. And two, I remember one specific lunch hour did you call into the local CBS station and tell, the, tell them you were standing at a nearby building and you could see him pacing around? I, I, I'm your boy, Bob Huggins. Higgins? Huggins? Higgins. Robert Higgins. Higgins. <laughs> Robert Higgins. The second one, I and, and obviously this is the one that isn't related to a horrific world incident. Wait, what does the first one have to do with Duran Duran? The first one has nothing. It has to do with my lunch hours at my grandmother's house. Oh, had. okay. The second one is I remember just there was one lunch hour, you know, maybe someone just won a car. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they just lost the wheel. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they hit a dollar. Maybe it was great. It was a commercial. I turned to Much Music. And like everyone bones with Much Music or MTV or whatever your country's alleged purveyor of music videos is. I remember when they used to play music videos. And for whatever reason, this was the kind of time of day at lunch hour. Uh, Much music today, classic cut. I remember they had a little, they had a little cartoon interstitial where it was in the shape uh, or in the style of Vincent Van Gogh's famous self-portrait, and he was shaving himself and cut his ear off, and then screamed terrifically, and uh, then it popped up. Much music, classic cut, very much animated. Very much like animated that. in the style of Mike Judge as well. It was very much like you could tell the extent to which this is influenced by Beavis and Butthead and that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I'm probably seven or eight years old, and they decided to play a classic cut, and I'm at commercial from Price is Right, and I see the video for Girls on Film. And uh, I, I would think not the night version. 
not the night not the night version but uh you're not gonna believe this bix for a disgusting little gremlin like me at eight years old it didn't really matter that it wasn't the night version you feel me (laughs) (laughs) i i was one of it didn't it didn't matter if it had the lingerie scene with the two girls with their tits out mud wrestling it didn't matter if it didn't have the scene with like the 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 like whipped cream lubricated candy cane with the chick like grinding her vagina over it. It didn't matter that it wasn't the night version. It was it was enough for me to watch the hot masseuse give the fat sumo wrestler a uh, a Swedish massage. Wait, that was the part that spoke to you. That wasn't necessarily the part that spoke to me. I'm just saying that, like, even even in that vein of the video, um, I, I knew I, I knew that I somehow had to, to have a part of this band. It was truly a formative moment. So fast forward, maybe I'm gonna say a year, but it literally could have been months. Again, back when your favorite music video station showed videos. Much Music used to do 1980s video weekends, and this was like an enormous awakening for me because like around the same time, you know, my parents um, – my parents literally met in a bar. Like my mom was was a bar manager, and my dad worked on the road with, with musical acts and stuff like that, and my parents have always been in the entertainment industry. So like this is something I grew up with. So this is around the same time I was starting to like dig in my parents' cassettes and starting to like listen to their music, and a lot of it's, you know – Stuff like this is like, you know, your Rhythmics and NXS and Depeche Mode and Duran Duran and Little Feet and Genesis because my dad's a fucking nerd and Rush because my dad's a fucking nerd. And so I'm starting to dig into their stuff and there's a Much Music 80s weekend. I remember um, watching, like sitting down and being like, oh, like I definitely got to see this and seeing the video for Planet Earth. And even knowing then, like probably being like eight years old or nine years old, knowing that it was corny as hell, but still just thinking the song is incredible. Like, like I just being nine years old, just wanting to get up and dance and thinking this, this is even if I appreciate even now how out of date and antiquated the style of music video is. I love this. And I've I've never looked back. But like I said, doing the deep dive for this week, it's it's reignited a different kind of passion, Vix. Many different passions.
So, I love Duran Duran. Bix loves Duran Duran. And like anyone who loves Duran Duran, I have to, you know, you you acquire other people's Duran Duran stories. This is the reason Bix and I just talked yeah. about the beginning of why we love them. So, in my own personal experiences, um, one of my sneaky favorite bands, my own genesis of why I love them has actually been outstripped and conquered in my head. This is largely due to a story that's been told to me by a pal over the years. Really, I'm not sure how to intro this other to say that uh, <laughs> my homie Karen Mills grew up in a home for two decades that had a three-foot-tall, hand-stenciled, hand-painted Duran Duran logo on the inside of her parents' walk-in closet. And on yeah. top of that, Karen, you are not in any way a Duran Duran fan, nor is anyone <laughs> Not at all. And yet... Yeah. You left it there for 20 years. Tell – all right. So so when did you and your family move into this house that had so, this giant Duran Duran logo in the walk-in closet? So I was born and my parents lived there. So I think they bought it mid-80s and I was born in 1990. Um, and I don't know. They just like – it was there. I, I recently um, – like learned today that there was also another band logo that they decided to paint over, but they kept Wait, the what? Duran Duran oh, one. This is news to me. Like, is it, this could yeah. be important to us? Like, was it like a Depeche Mode logo or anything? It was the Cure. Holy shit! Are you fucking kidding me? No, no. And this is news to me too. Like, I was talking to my parents this morning, and it was. I have okay. I felt like a freak. I hadn't talked to you for like two months. And I I messaged you about like I have this like weird new podcast. It's not related to my job like specifically, but like we're talking about Duran Duran. I want to talk about your parents' Duran Duran wall. How how did you not mention that? Where in the house is the Cure wall? So it was it was in the same room. So when my like a different part of your parents' bedroom. In the closet, like in their like that, because that <laughs> room is like their walk-in closet, and they they painted over the cure wall because like it was my mom's side of the room, like <laughs> so. But, but they kept the Duran Duran wall on my dad's side of like this walk-in closet room. Okay, so this is Karen. This is like kind of my fundamental question, like the thing that I've always harangued you about anytime you've ever brought the story up in public. Yeah. Why did your parents keep this wall for 20 years? Because you're not a Duran Duran fan. In fact, you've admitted, I asked you yesterday. Oh, I no. Told Bix, I never told intentionally listened to them. Yes, I told Bix in advance of this. If we talk to my girl, Karen, I guarantee she's never heard a Duran Duran song. <laughs> and if she has, like, she doesn't know it. And you totally. literally That's, told that me. That is 100%. And I had to yeah. tell you yesterday, you didn't realize until literally yesterday that Hungry Like the Wolf was a Duran Duran song. No, no. You know the song, kind of, but not no association with the band at all. All right. So this is the thing that gets me. You're not a fan. Your younger sister's no. not a fan. Your, no. Your, your parents, who, by the way, shouts not to your dad, who's like an Olympic fucking bronze medal rower. Yeah. Or something like that. And for the picture that we put up on the Slack already and we'll probably use for the template for this show, your dad's rowing medals are it like the picture you sent me of the Grand Duran logo. Has your dad medal. has all and these international rowing medals. 
and they're all in front of this ridiculous Duran Duran logo in his walk-in closet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, okay. Like, I, I'm just to speak, like, I, when I was talking to my parents about this, because my mom, my mom, I was talking to my mom on the phone and she like yelled to my dad and she's like, you, you never bought any Duran Duran records, right? Like growing up or whatever. And he's like, no, no, like literally Jordan, no one in my household listens to Duran Duran. So why did your parents leave this? Dude, this well, is no, no, no. It's not just that they left it, though. It's that now that we know there was also the Cure one, which got covered up. They painted yes, over it. Why that did one. your parents cover Was the Cure one more crudely done? Like, was it... Because here's the thing. Like, again, you have to see the picture. But, Karen, I think you can admit, there is an artistic level of detail of the Duran Duran logo that... Oh, my I God, could, yes. Like, I could almost understand view. why your parents left it. Someone well, yeah, left it looks it. just like... The, it just look, looks ju- almost just like the first album. It, dude, yeah. it's identical! And it's so... It's meticulously... Karen, it's, it's not a stencil, is it? Like, that shit was hand-painted, right? It was. It was, like, drawn on with pencil, because you could, you could still see, like, pencil lines. Like, <laughs> and then it was painted. Like hand but, painted. But when you think about how they do the shadow in the DD, dude, they if you look at the way this thing is done, they used at least three different kinds of paintbrushes. Never mind the oh, colors. probably to get the thicknesses. Yeah. Also <laughs> like, four different yeah. colors because the white they made sure to use actual white as opposed to the off white of the rest of the closet. No, oh really. I, <laughs> I mean you studied the picture. Well, in the or you wait. Are you saying that's just the picture? Or? No, no, no. I, you guys are are studying the picture. This is something that I haven't see again. Like I didn't even like really look at it that much. Well, I mean, this, ever, this well, wall means very little besides the fact that it was just like <laughs> I lived in this house for like twenty three years with this wall. <laughs> so, so I mean, again, the essential question. Like Bick said, they got rid of the care one. What the fuck was wrong with your parents that they didn't get rid of the Duran one for 23 years? It's insane. Like the fir- I, I literally remember the first time you told me this story. We were eating Ace Burger. We were at Gus's Pub in the middle of the day and almost spit my food out. I couldn't believe – like that's like the craziest why would your parents leave this if they don't yeah. give a shit about Duran Duran? Why? I think – I think it just was like maybe the one the cure one was in like a more inconvenient place and then needed to paint the wall maybe. So did your parents derive some maybe, inspiration from maybe seeing it was my mom? Ranch? My mom wanted like clean walls and my dad was like, whatever, like I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to put my medals around. Like <laughs> So you also told me today, speaking of, um, you know, surprising tidbits to this story, Karen, you also told me today that uh, your parents were redoing the bathroom, which is the room next to the (laughs) Duran Duran walk-in closet. And they found a uh, crude painting on the jip wall, which I relate to as someone who's painted before. You get some jip wall up. You got a little free surface. You know that you're going to paint over it. Maybe a jip wall. It's like the, like a piece of jip rock that has like the, the yeah like over it, so you can just like paint over it easily. Yeah, and then like it was um they actually didn't I don't think they painted over it. It was behind um my parents disassembled their sauna, 
and it was like behind the slatted wood. Oh, by the way, you sound so bougie right now. Oh, my parents. I know. Do you know what? Actually, the Duran Duran wall got covered with the sauna because they moved (laughs) to the sauna. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So apart apart from sounding bougie and rich as shit, Karen, what what did your parents find in the jip wall in their bathroom? Um, a cat's ass. Like like a crude crude painting of a cat's ass. A cat, like, kind of bending over and, like, looking backwards, and it's ass. (laughs) Yeah. So, did you, okay, do you have the same questions that I have about the previous, because... Oh, I think these people were fucked. I've seen, I've seen, I mean, I've seen your parents' house, okay? Like, when I look at it, I imagine, based on the time span... That it kind of makes sense that your parents might be the second owners when you look at like how um, is that maybe maybe third okay but like but so I look at this and I think who owned this house before mm-hmm. these people I w- I was thinking about this too because the the wall with the cure and the Duran Duran was used as a bedroom but had no windows this is like a a four bedroom house to begin with, that would be the fifth. So someone with a lot of kids. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously that's <laughs> and it. we're that's, willing that's to like put one of them in a room with no window. That, that must be like the oldest child. Like she's got, she's got, I'm assuming she, maybe, maybe that's sexist. Yeah, I don't know. But like, I, like every time you tell me this, every time you've ever told me this story, I just imagine some like 12, 13 year old girl in 1982 who falls in love with Duran Duran before he even knew about the cure thing. And just imagine her whole weekend is taking like painters masking tape and lining up like the Duran Duran logo and buying various brushes. And then her parents yell at her and like, bitch, you can't paint on the wall. Ah! And she just doesn't care. And somehow your parents never paint over it for 23 years. It's like yeah. something out of like a really good Ink Master challenge. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, 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 it would be interesting to like go back and and find these people, but because they there was also other like there was weird decorative like decisions made in this house that like I've heard over the years too oh, that really? just like are just bizarre. Yeah, like a wagon wheel light fixture, <laughs> lime green carpet. I feel like this house was a mess before my parents bought it. I love, I love, I love that all of this has only doubled down on the idea that your parents' house was previously owned by some certain kind of like carnivalesque psychopaths who happened to have a daughter that loved Duran Duran and us. Yeah. Karen, this has been beautiful. Yeah. It's been beautiful catching up. When are you going to come to Toronto, girl? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I There's potential that like I may do a work term next September. Maybe there. Who knows? But I'll even I'll even let you get some promotion in. You want you want to plug your Twitter or something, Karen? You're actually literally the first official two scoops guest ever. Am I? Yes, courtesy of the Duran Duran wall. You are literally the first Two Scoops guest ever. Yeah, we didn't invite Jill Hennessy yet. No, we didn't. And she, I mean, I think she'll probably, I think she'll take her invitation. 
we we both like crossing Jordan. We obviously love Law and Order. <laughs> Bix, you you panicked and put her at number one instead of Richard L. Brooks because you were worried that everyone would call you misogynist if you picked the only male ever as a second chair ADA is the top second chair ADA ever. Before but then remembering that he's also the only uh, black. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a problematic situation. So yeah, even before Jill Hennessy, who's beautiful and multi talented, Karen Mills. You're our first. Yay. I feel so honored. At, at KL Mills with two S's? Is that right? I think so. <laughs> I feel like you're on my Twitter more than I am. <laughs> Whatever, girl. Get out of here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I guess weird 23 years of her growing up with her parents inexplicably having a Duran Duran while they're walking closet, despite no one in her entire household enjoying Duran Duran, which remains insane to me. RIP to the Duran Duran wall. But Bix, as we approached uh, doing this particular episode, you gave me a little homework assignment. You wanted me to watch a particular concert. And frankly, as someone that likes, you know, if I'm going to watch a concert, I want to see uh, I want to see a famous venue. I want to see a big date. New Year's Eve, 1982, the Palladium in New York. I'm all about it. Live on but, TV. But why? Why this particular concert? Why'd you choose this? Why? Why'd you want to do this and make me watch this over? Like, say, let's sit down and watch Arena. Well, I mean, two reasons. A, it is during the Rio era. B, just a really insane performance, especially, especially as I'm sure we can agree on Simon uh, during New Religion. <laughs> All right, so this is this is something that we we hinted at before, and is absolutely inescapable when talking about Duran Duran and their uh, creative oeuvre. This concert is a good concert. I mean, they're they're suited and booted. 
John Taylor is wearing some kind of like strange red double breasted nutcracker outfit. <laughs> they're they're in bare form. But the third song they play is New Religion. And when they play New Religion, Simon LeBon whips off his <laughs> his heavily shoulder padded linen jacket and it immediately becomes abundantly clear that four of the five of them, as we'll talk about every, every time we say this, keep in mind it's 80% because it never includes Roger Taylor. Uh, they are very, very high on cocaine, especially Simon LeBon. What makes you say such a thing? <laughs> The the dancing, the the way he rips the jacket off. Also, I don't like I think you'd agree with me. Like it, it's safe to say before we started this endeavor for this particular episode, like if I'd ask you like, oh, do you do you think Duran and Duran were heavily influenced by cocaine? I think it's safe to say that both of us say yes, correct? They're in eighties music <laughs> so yes, yeah, sure. Okay, but how did you feel this morning when I showed you the single art for Hungry Like the Wolf and you realize that inexplicably there is a geometric rhombus that is shaped to look like a razor blade and there is four very distinct white lines which very clearly indicate everyone doing blow except Roger Taylor? I don't know how I never noticed that. Okay. In fa- like also, well, well your eyes are drawn this. to your eyes are drawn to that they're taking more of the Rio cover, sure, and kind it's, of redoing that. Yeah, it's like a play it, off of the elements. Yeah. That said, this this is not you know this is not like over analysis imagination. Like I showed this to you. Like, do you feel do you feel comfortable in saying having looked at the hungry like the wolf single cover that is very clearly the intent of the album cover. Oh, it is very obviously supposed to evoke cocaine. <laughs> okay. So the Palladium concert you showed, it it lays the Duran Duran template in a really good way, right down to the fact that they close with girls on film. Simon LeBond introduces the whole band vis-a-vis that song. Any particular highlights for you? Obviously, you know, for the homies on the Slack We'll link it up for you. You can rock all together, have a little dance party. But, you know, what really stands out to you? I, I'm i a Girls on Film lover. I was excited to hear them end in such a way, knowing that's the stereotypical. I've never seen Duran Duran live. So, you know, knowing that's like the big show close normally, I was I was excited. Well, I mean, these days the show close is usually uh, Rio. The more these you know. Days, it, these days it's more Rio, but the, I mean, back then, yeah, it was Girls on Film. I mean, as much as I love Girls on Film, I mean, that concert is all about new religion. The, like we said, I can't stress it enough. Uh, new religion is, I think it's an underrated Duran Duran song, but in the context of this concert, it's, oh my God, the performance is immaculate and. As cruel and as glib as it might sound, this gets to something that I think is very uh, – what I think is a constituent part of us talking about this band. It sounds absolutely atrocious, but cocaine clearly makes them so much better. 
Like their live performances are out of this world when these people are on drugs. You look at the girls on film video. Apparently in the girls on film video, John Taylor is out of his mind on meth. And then you watch him in the girls on film video and you're like, holy shit, he's going another level. You watch a concert like this. It's obvious that all of them, other than Roger Taylor, are drunk and on cocaine and they're just going out of their minds. And for me growing up, a big part of why I love Duran Duran and why, you know, this week only doubles down on my love for them. Simon LeBond's lyricism is something that, yeah, it's it's born of being a bit of a creative wordsmith, but it's the way he puts words together, there's no way you're doing this sober. There's just no way the way he does it. And New Religion, even by the standards of like the first several Duran Duran albums, New Religion's lyrics are fairly out there, especially the weird what would you even call the delivery of the of the verses in this song because it's not spoken word but it's not quite being sung yeah i mean i normally joke like things in this era and like say like oh like so-and-so has bars but it's kind of like like weird shitty proto-rap maybe (laughs) like I mean, it's not, but it's he's still sing-songing it more than yeah <laughs> rap or even like a um, someone like West End Girls or even anything like that. So I mean, but but this is at the same time. This is part of I think why both of us love Duran Duran so much. It's you know one thing we need to establish right now is we're as as we're still talking about this, and you know we're obviously going to talk more about you know the eighties and their rise to fame and that kind of shit. But part of what makes them great is if you're an actual fan, you know their canon extends well into the 90s, well into the aughts. You know, they're still releasing. Dude, their last album was fantastic. It was. I actually thought those all those songs were much better live. Like, I felt like it was a little maybe try hard doing them as dance songs, but when they're a little loosened up live, I think they came out much better on the last album. But- and, and also going back to something we talked about off air, dude, they're still a band that there is an unmistakable crushing element to going to see a band that was popular in the 70s, 80s, shit, even the 90s. Hell, even the aughts. And you see them and they're just physically broken. Duran Duran just seemed like horny old man versions of the same people they were in 1982. None of them are like bloated and gross looking and crippled or anything like that. They're all they're just they're dad versions of Duran Duran. They're lively. They can sing or play their asses off. Only John looks a kind of weathered but as you pointed out to me it's more just because he has a kind of an angular face that wears age like that all right you want to since we mentioned john taylor you want to quickly hit tmz and watch watch him peel out on the cops okay so i vaguely remember this from when it happened <laughs> so this is from a few years ago what's the date on tmz is 2012 uh october 25th 2012 so pretty much four years ago so <laughs> duran duran bases john taylor was pulled over for uh, rolling through a stop sign. And um, 
TMZ caught him. He pulls over. I mean, there's no other way to say it other than he just he gets pulled over by police. And then when they go back to process him, he just drives away. So Big's like, fast forward to like maybe like 130 and just give me what you think as you watch this dude who's been pulled over for blowing a stop sign and you watch him get away from the police by rolling through a stop sign. <laughs> okay. We I hear wind. Uh, he's talking to the cop. TMZ cameraman starts turning away for some reason. I guess scared that John Taylor sees him. Uh, the cop is gesticulating directly in John Taylor's face. John Taylor's, like, getting his registration or something. Something sees, seems very conciliatory. The cop takes out a pen. Everything seems to be going very well. The cop turns around to walk Bad move. his car. And John, John Taylor... <laughs> He just fucking peels. Was that you or was that someone on the video? That's someone on the video. That's the TMZ cameraman. He fucking knows how hilarious that is. Yeah. And the minute, dude, the minute the cop turns around, that is not, that is not the first time John Taylor's ever done that. There's no way. The minute the cop turns around, he pulls away. Also, it's, I feel like he almost Jedi mind tricks him in the sense that I feel like the cop would have been spooked if, like, he, like, floored it and tried to, like, gun it. You know what I mean? But he just rolls away. He, he literally, he rolls, like, he rolls away like it's totally chill. He rolls the stop sign, which is very much the original reason he got fucking pulled over. But he rolls away at a speed where I feel like somehow it like Jedi mind tricked the cop and the cop was like, oh, there's no way he's driving away. Is he is he leaving? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's gone. And that was it. John Taylor, ladies and gentlemen. So on that tip, Bix, I spent all week trying to find the original article originally uh, mentioned in this memoir by Andy Taylor, uh, Wild Boy, his memoir of his life with Duran Duran, released in 2008. I spent all week trying to find the particular article, but I can't. But I will read you his uh, discussion of a particular article that uh, was a catalyzing moment in in his life and Duran Duran's moment as a band and as a, as a worldwide band. Are, are you ready for a little excerpt from Andy Taylor's memoir? Is this the excerpt? Is this the excerpt on DailyMail.com titled "How Cocaine Destroyed Our Dream" by Duran Duran's Andy Taylor? You better believe it. My private suite, with its walls of padded silk, is at the top of the exclusive plaza at the Hotel Ghost Paris. Writing this for him. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I don't think the language is crazy enough to be Simon Ghost writing for him. But my, I feel my private seat with its walls of padded silk at the top of the exclusive. <laughs> Swim seagull in the sky towards that hollow western isle. I mean, I feel like if Simon LeBon was ghost writing for anyone you'd know. We digress. One of Duran Duran's personal assistants is hammering on my door. Gov, wake up. By the way, I love he calls him Gov. <laughs> Gov, wake up. There's been a story published in London. You need to read it. I grab my bathrobe and open the door. I pass the tabloid newspaper and feel a sick twinge in my stomach as I read the headline. Coke crazy Duran Duran.
as I read the story and look at the pictures, I feel a mixture of disbelief and dread. My mind is racing. This time I tell myself, we're in real trouble. And we were. This was a scandal that would affect everyone close to us and change the public's perception of Duran Duran forever. The paper had photographs of me and my bandmates, Simon LeBond, John Taylor, Nick Rhodes, and me on the front page. I didn't mention his words. Before we even get to it, I already noticed they don't mention Roger Taylor. Like, I love, I love, I love how even like the first hit piece ever done on this band, the first time anyone in the tabloids tries to take him out, they're even careful to mention. By the way, the drummer Roger Taylor, he's good. He's good people. Do we know what year this is? This is 1982. Okay. Oh, this is pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is right. You know, like they're about to hit big with Hungry Like the Wolf in the Lab. Also, the photo, the photo they have here is spectacular. Oh, my God. Simon LeBon put his head into a packet of white powder and sniffed. Andy Taylor laid out a huge lines of cocaine on the sink unit. They are hooked on the stuff, says X-Minder. They needed to perform. They needed to have a good time. They needed to cope with the pressures of stardom. It's not a UK tabloid article without the word minder. Inside, across the center pages, next to another big photograph of us, was the piece de la resistance, a lurid account of drug use headlined, I saw Duran Duran go crazy on coke. It was by Al Beard, the former doorman at the head of the Rum Runner Club in Birmingham where Duran Duran were formed in 1980. Which, by the way, we really can't talk about Duran Duran without the Rum Runner. This club is, this club is everything to them, Bix. I actually I, didn't do too much digging into that, so I'll let you go with that. So the Rum Runner was a club who was demolished in 1987, but it was kind of like the formative rock club in Birmingham. And I'm really kind of like the only thing like that in Birmingham. When you look at how um, journalists, even in Britain, sized up Duran Duran, one of the things they find surprising is like, wow, they're like very like charismatic and like very charming for Brummies and like that kind of shit. So the Rum Runner was the big club. It sounds like this again kind of ni- dynamic that Depeche Mode had with the whole like, wait, these guys are from Essex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like that. But I mean, at least Essex are closer to London. You know what I mean? It's a specific kind of like that's well, a cultural you, wait, thing. These guys it's... are from Basildon. <laughs> so in the Rum Runner Club, the whole way, and we'll get to the chauffeur and how how it like worms up into my heart with all its weird neo Nazi imagery. But the entire way that this band formed is they're all from Birmingham. Like all the Taylors and Nick Rhodes worked at this club. Nick Rhodes was like a DJ and like all the Taylor, like I think like Andy Taylor was like a burger flipper and John Taylor was like, he like washed glasses and shit. They all worked at this club and they had a band and they're trying to find a lead singer and the lyricist. And there was a barmaid there who said, well, my boyfriend's like really into poetry. And it turned out to be Simon LeBond's girlfriend who introduced Simon LeBond to all the Taylors and Nick Rhodes. And the poem and, and bit of prose that he ended up swaying the dudes in the band with was ultimately the lyrics that would go on to become the chauffeur. So, like, right from the get go, you know. Like, to me, that's the perfect kind of marriage, because if the chauffeur is the kind of lyrics that Simon is showing to these dudes and that's what they're getting on board for, they're down to be weird. Should I read the chauffeur as a poem? (laughs) Would you be so kind? 
Should I read the whole thing or should I stop it? Oh, I'm about to kick my feet up. David Bixon's band. Fucking make my heart sing. Okay. Out on the tar plains, the glides are moving. All looking for a new place to drive. You sit beside me. So newly charming. charming. Sweating dewdrops. Glisten fresh on your side. Where's the sun drip down? And the sun and the sun drips down. And the sun drips down, bedding heavy behind the front of your dress, all shadowy lined. And the droning engine throbs in time with your beating heart. Way down the down lane the lane away, away you got him right for another day. The aph- the aphids swarm up in the drifting haze. Swim seagull in the sky towards, towards the that western Isle. Western Isle. My envy lady, lady holds you fast in her gaze. And the sun and the sun drips down, bedding heavy behind, the front of your dress all sadly lined, and the droning engine throbs in time with your beating heart. And the sun drips down, bedding heavy behind. It wouldn't be a chorus if it was a poem. <laughs> Sing Blue Silver. Where that last verse at, though? And watching lovers part, I feel you smiling. smiling. What well, glass there's lies stick in your mind. In your mind. To tear up from your eyes. With a thought to stiffen brooding lies. And I'll only watch you leaving leave me further behind. And the chorus, blah, 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 sing blue silver, sing, sing blue silver. These motherfuckers are 20 years old. They're drunk in a bar. They see Simon LeBond's lyrics and just know... This guy is our guy. So as <laughs> the Andy Taylor memoir continues, you know, he talks about how this article kind of like ruined them for a minute. He talks about like the embarrassment of his father calling him and talking about like I went to the newsstand this morning and everyone looked at me. And, you know, eventually the rum runner ends up being because of this article ends up becoming like a target of investigation. There's a story where in like 82 or 83, um, cops go into the rum runner and they find cocaine behind a brick in the wall. And they basically take some weird dude who's like a roadie for Duran Duran and like, kind of like make him the fall guy. So the rum runner was basically done in by the fame it accrued by being Duran Duran's home base. But this this really was the nest without without the Taylors and Nick Rhodes hanging out here and working here and having their band and meeting Simon LeBond's girlfriend at the time. We we never would have had this beautiful thing, Bix. Amazing. It really it I mean, it goes to show you like how like slight the chance is to to miss something incredible. You know what I mean? Because Going to like what you're talking about, one of the things that 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 you uh, staked on me when we were setting this up. Well, do you have that Moby quote handy, by the way? Uh, give me one second, and I will. I should have gotten it earlier. Yeah. So this is like one of the things that you kind of like staked on me, and one of the reasons that you wanted to, to talk about Duran Duran. The fact that like we talked about off the top, the, this band is so misunderstood and gets unnecessarily, not even just unnecessarily reviled, but doesn't get. It's not that they get consternation; it's that they're not celebrated in the way that they should be. Well, they get they get some consternation. Uh, they don't really get it now necessarily as much. The last couple of years, okay. Uh, here's what Moby said in 2003 on his 
Wikipedia calls it his website diary. I presume this is just what we would call a blog now. They were cursed by what we can call the Bee Gees curse, which is write amazing songs, sell tons of records, and consequently incur the wrath or disinterest of the rock-obsessed critical establishment. And this is immediately clear as soon as they blow up. We talked earlier in passing about Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I mean, Wikipedia's entry for Seven and the Ragged Tiger is extremely, I think, revealing when you look at all the critical. You get people like Robert Criscow calling them, you know, imperialist wimps and shit like this. Like, I feel like Robert Criscow is someone that, like, I take historically more serious than most people in the veins of music criticism. And I generally, I feel like, agree with him more than most people. But I can't think of a bigger misreading of these dudes and imperialist wimps. And I can't imagine any reason for it other than what we talked about. It's just popular backlash. You know, like, like you know, we'll dig into it. I think there's... You know, there's a homophobic disco element to it. There is, I think, a, a fear of what's new, the music video, the idea of the music band as kind of like quasi-Hollywood star. Well, and But then- the actual reviews for these things are scathing in a way that like – like we talked about like you're really going li- to – you're going to listen to an album with New Moon on a Monday and you're going to tell me this is garbage? I I'm not going to hear of it. This is ridiculous. Well, and not just the music video being new or whatever, but it's like, oh, these guys make good, impressive, well-directed videos that I would think were relatively expensive compared to the other videos at the time. So their music must not be good because they have to make their videos so good. So like, when you look at these reviews, how do you kind of see it play out in setting the template for – what would kind of become like the baseline Duran Duran criticism for 20 plus years to come. Okay. Let's see. Um, record mirror, pathetic, useless, no good. It's pompous and possibly the first chapter in their decline. (laughs) Melody maker restores danger and menace to a band that was veering dangerously close to the insipid. So with Rio, like this is dude this is goes to exactly talk about like the shit we're getting at it's like so so look at rio like look at literally rio itself rio is a song about this band trying to make it in america and it's actually owing to exactly what bix and i are talking about simon lebon for for a cute boy with a fucking headband around his head Addled on cocaine, sweating out of his mind and having to whip off his shoulder padded blazer. This man has a mind for lyricism and poetry. And Rio is an incredibly smart, incisive song critiquing the American media landscape. It is about Duran Duran trying to break through in America and the kind of over-the-top hoops will have to jump through. If I'm not mistaken, Bix, isn't this also the song where he mentions New Romantic, like, literally, lyrically? Like, he even makes kind of, like, a joke about New Romanticism and their look? Yeah. I'll pull up the exact lyric in a second. Thank you. Like, Rio... There's a lot of shit to be said for the Rio video. 
you know, it came together almost by accident in a way. We'll talk about Russell make uh, Mulkey. I don't know. Planet and, Earth is the one that has the new romantic lyric. Oh, okay, my bad. Um, so I mean, dude, that's the first single. You know, even <laughs> even before that. But the whole thing was they go to Antigua. They were expecting to film in London. They show up. They end up getting all these ridiculous colored suits. They get on this yacht and film this video. And not only is Rio a defining 1980s video, it it fits perfectly with the ethos of this tongue-in-cheek song about – the kinds of things Duran Duran will have to do and the kind of ways will have to appeal to a larger Western audience. And not only does it portend their video blow up, it literally sets the stage for it. That is some prescient shit. And here are the opening lyrics to Planet Earth. Only come outside to watch the nightfall with the rain. I heard you making patterns rhyme. Like some new romantic looking for the TV sound. Can you hear me now? Sorry. You'll see I'm right some other time. And then, you know, look now, look now, look all around. There's no sign of life. Voices, another sound. Can you hear me now that this is planet Earth? You're looking at planet Earth. Pop, 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 pop. Talk to me about Russell Mulkey. This man, it's it's instructive. So I'm pretty sure, like, I'll have to look this up right now with the, the video Vanguard Awards. But... So the first year that MTV issued the Video Vanguard Award, actually, you know what? I found so I got I, we got to talk more about Robert Christgau for a second. <laughs> we can know Robert Christgau is the kind of we could dedicate multiple shows to him. Okay, well, well, what did you what do you think he gave Rio the album on a uh, grade letter scale? So I have. I mean, okay, so you said grade letter scale, so I assume he didn't read it a dud or give it the bomb. Right, so you know we're talking A, B, C, D, yeah. I'll with, say with B minuses. I'll say B plus, C minus. Jesus, plus, there is a must to avoid graphic next to it in the shape of a stop sign. Dude, like that's part of the reason I love Robert Chris Gow. It's just like I can, I feel like I can never fully access his mind. Sometimes I feel like I have a good handle on like what he thinks is like cool or edgy, and then. Basically, the longer time goes on, I realize he's the original fucking hipster, and he's just a dude that was deeply kind of like influenced and shamed by like what people around him like thought was especially cool and shit. Which is what Moby was saying. Yeah, straight up, it's, Here, it makes sense that we would have read his review of you know Seven the Ragged Tiger because he's he's one of those people that sets that tempo for that kind of homophobic, banal, stupid criticism of what Duran Duran are doing. Okay, here's what he says about Rio. And which Rio now is pretty much universally considered an all-time great album. And an all-time great fucking video. Yes. Okay. And their beautiful suits on their yacht. With music drilly electronic, dryly electronic, sorry, uh, enough to pass for new wave and pop Mo- moistly textural enough to go over his pop lyrics that rearrange received language from several levels of discourse into a noncommittal private doggerel and a limitless supply of Bowie clones to handle the vocal chores. This is Anglo disco at its most what? solemnly expedient. It lacks even the forced cheer- cheerfulness of parenthesis. What ha- whatever happened to haircut one hundred parenthesis? Wait, I I don't really want to know. 
as if as if it had as many hooks as a flock of seagulls, not bloody likely. It still wouldn't be silly enough to be any fun. First of all, Haircut 100, Pelican West is a great album. <laughs> but we're still in a paradigm here where we're comparing Haircut 100 during this is No, I this, know, but I can't like this is one of the few times I wish we were doing not that I ever want to display my face to the the masses, but I almost wish we were doing a television show right now. I wish I wish I could relay the look of horror on my face hearing you say all that. I'm looking at some of the others here. Uh, New Order, Power, Corruption, and Lies gets a B plus. Which is, I mean, it's good, but it's plus. You too. War gets a B plus. <laughs> I don't know, man. If it, if fuck, fuck, Robert Chris Gal. Okay, on this page. Paz and Chopper, gets... whatever the fuck he calls it. Okay, actually, wait. It looks like there are two artists here that get an A minus, and that's the high score on this individual page. Who do you think they are? I can't even imagine. Miles Davis, of course. Uh, okay, 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 okay. So, so I should have said this beforehand. I don't want to sound like a huge dick, but knowing Robert Criscow and kind of gauging my familiarity, I was going to say uh, I think they might be persons of color. And I think they may make like slightly offbeat music. So I got one of the one. <laughs> right. And then so Miles Davis, Star People. And? Nothing against Miles Davis. And the other one is, let me make sure I know which one this is. Heaven 17's, which one is this? Uh Oh, no. A minus, an A minus that he later amended to a B plus. <laughs> yeah, I... Okay, <laughs> I mean, I, mean, heaven, I like Kevin Seventeen, but okay. I mean, in fairness, they are they are a white, so I wasn't entirely right. But I knew one of them would be like some black jazz musician or some yeah. shit that Robert Briscoe just. Um, and I know okay, that's gonna like upset whole... someone listening to that. If you've if if you're upset by that comment that I just made, you've clearly never read Robert Cow's music reviews, right? And also the like the Anglo disco comment. It's like you're faulting them for doing something that resembles dance music yeah. because they're white like dude robert like dude all robert the, like, racial dude. dynamics of and racial and like sexual and gender dynamics of all this stuff is way fucked up yeah and dude robert Criscow is like honestly like he's the progenitor of this kind of stuff but like I feel like as far as music criticism goes, like he really is the beast that historically gives that shit life. Like as I dig back through music criticism and look for dudes that are just like, it's a dude. Like I love rap music and I love soul music and I love R and B and stuff like that. But Robert Criscow was the first dude to kind of wear it like this weird, like, like intersectional badge of honor. Like, dude, look how fucking cool I am. All your all your white lady boy disco guys suck. Right, like jazz is intellectually superior. Yeah, it, it, dude, I, jazz a, is the real music of the American Negro. There's a reason that he calls it the Paz and Jop pole or whatever. Like obviously based on jazz and pop, it's like he sees this shit and like that's that's literally it. Intellectually superior. I couldn't say it better. And that is, I think, an incredibly corrosive idea. And it's exactly the thing that gives rise to what we're talking about. People historically misunderstanding Duran Duran as 
some kind of like girls band in 1983 and not an incredibly enterprising rock and roll band that has a ton to offer. Pretty much. And anti-synthesizer bias, although he did like Heaven 17. I mean, can't, you know, can't lose them all, I guess, with Robert Chris Cow. So, Bix, I want to I talk about, I mean, we talked about 1983 and um, them kind of hitting hitting their high. First of all, I don't think we can talk about Duran Duran without at least mentioning something about their legitimate breakthrough. They had a lot of great videos. I talked about how seeing the girls on film video literally like geez 15 years or something after the fact maybe horny as a nine-year-old but their breakthroughs hungry like the wolf when when you see the hungry for like better the wolf, and for worse because here's the thing it's a great song but it's also by far the easiest duran duran song to make fun of Yes, I would agree absolutely because not only does it have like cheesy 80s hallmarks like it's got like the phil collins drum roll Literally, didn't they work with Phil Collins' producer, too? Uh, like, isn't that, like, where, like, the drum roll came from? I'm not sure, actually. But, the every, like, I think I told you, like, as, you know, before we recorded this, the scene in the video where Simon LeBond gets up and flips the table, even as a kid, I knew, like, it was the corniest thing in the world, and it made me laugh out loud. Yes, but it's the it's become a punchline, and it, which is too bad because it is a good song. It's a, a great song, but you know what I mean. Also, going back to something we discussed before, I believe um, Kimber, who it was in the band, I want to say maybe it was Nick Rhodes. Uh, someone in the band described first of all, actually, "Hungry Like the Wolf." They filmed it uh, on site in Sri Lanka, and like Andy Taylor got sick because he drank the water and stuff like that. So like. <laughs> In terms of in terms of bands, and also like they went to like Antigua for their first video and stuff like that, and Roger Taylor showed up late. In terms of bands that did like they were the first real band to do these kind of like locale videos, and the amount of logistic hijinks that seems to go with them when you look at the stories is actually kind of amazing. Um, I think the Save a Prayer video, um, uh. Andy Taylor, he's playing guitar in a tree and he falls over the tree branch and like gets a concussion. Like, never mind, never mind John Taylor being out of his mind on crystal meth during the the girls on film video. Once these guys start touring for locales, they actually like start getting hurt doing these videos. But the best thing is, I think it was Andy Taylor, he describes the Hungry Like the Wolf video as Indiana Jones as horny. <laughs> I mean, that kind of describes their whole uh, videography. That literally is it. So Russell Mulkey, their director, who is – this is incredibly instructive and I think important to point out. If you're trying to like kind of understand where we're coming from and this kind of thing, know this. So the MTV Music Video Awards, imagine they're still important. Imagine, imagine this shit matters. Um, do you know what year they started the video Vanguard Award Bix? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. They started it in 1984. So they start in 84. Do you know who the initial three recipients are? Ooh, okay. Um, well, but th- was this for the artist or was it because it's the Michael Jackson vi- well, video Vanguard Award, isn't it? Or- it later becomes the Michael Jackson video Vanguard, but at this time it's just the video Vanguard Award. 
But it's for the artists. It's not for the directors, right? Or so it's both. The initial three, David Bowie, The Beatles, and Richard Lester for obviously directing, you know, A Hard Day's Night and The Beatles videos, right? That that works. 85. Keep in mind, like we just said, Duran Duran have taken over the world in 1983. This is 85. Your 1985 Video Vanguard recipients, David Byrne, presumably for his hilarious fucking dance moves in the Once in a Lifetime video. And two, Russell Mulcahy and Godly and Cream. Literally, by the second year of the Video Vanguard Award, the two people, Godly and Cream having directed Girls on Film and Russell Mulcahy having directed every other great Duran Duran early video other than The Chauffeur, which is directed by Ian Eames, they're already inducted for the Video Vanguard Award by 85. They are like two and three years removed from doing work for Duran Duran. And already they're being immortalized as the giants of their genre. There is no understating what kind of power that Russell Mulcahy and I think even in, in the Girls on Film video, even if it was intended for – nightclubs that had video screens that would show a little saucier behavior. Like I can't think of anything more instructive about Duran Duran than that. The primary two music video directors, especially the one guy in Russell Mulcahy that catalyzes the early career. That's, that's the second year of the Vanguard award, man. Pretty damn telling. I mean, of those early videos, I mean, as far as, like, quality, like, whoa, like, these videos, like, who really stands out other than Duran Duran and Michael Jackson? No one! Anyway? Dude, and this is, dude, and this is the other thing. I told you this. So, Russell Mulcahy, if you don't know, he's an Australian director, and, I mean, frankly, if you're, I can't imagine, this is the last time we'll ever mention this man on the show. Dude, he's literally the guy that directed the music video for Video Killed the Radio Star by the Buggles. Yeah. MTV goes on the air. He's the guy. I told you earlier today, I went back and watched it. In my head, I thought like, oh, like, I remember the video for Video Kill the Radio Star. Like, they're in, like, the, the silver suits and they're on the white set and whatever. The multiple cuts, it's – he is so far ahead of the time. You watch his Elton John videos. You watch the video for, like, I'm Still Standing or something like that. From 80 to 83 – this guy is so far ahead of what everyone else is doing. It sounds stupid now. Like it sounds really basic to be like, well, I mean, a music video, it's a, it's supposed to be like a miniature movie, but it wasn't, it wasn't until this guy figured out that this is what it's supposed to be like. Well, look and it, look, okay. Look at the first hour of MTV, which has been re-aired various times in the last few years. You know, for the launch, uh, well, the relaunch of VH1 Classic as MTV Classic for the anniversary. Other than Video Killed the Radio Star, there aren't any videos like that. The nope. second, I mean, the, the second video is Pat Benatar's You Better Run. And, I mean, if you want to say, you know, the first video that's actually being put on there as a current song in their playlist, or, as opposed to Video Killed the Radio Star being there for symbolism from a band that had already broken up. I mean, the first, the if you want to call it, then the real first video is just 
Pat Benatar and her band playing in a garage. There's nothing, dude, outside of Michael Jackson, there is nothing like Duran Duran for the first four years of MTV. There's nothing. There's nothing even close. You start to get approximations late 83. You start to get like, you know, your loves a battlefield and stuff like that that has dialogue. But there is other than Michael Jackson, there is absolutely nothing like Duran Duran for MTV. And it's no surprise the minute they saw Hungry Like the Wolf, even if it's horny Indiana Jones, it's no wonder they're showing Simon LeBon flipping over his table a million times. There's nothing else like this other than Michael Jackson. Yeah. Uh, looking at the Video Vanguard recipients, you know who surprisingly does not have a Video Vanguard award? Who's that? David Fincher. Really? I thought you were going to say like, Michelle Gondry. Does Michelle Gondry have one? Uh, I don't think so. <gasps> that is fucking shameful. And Duran Duran did get one as a Lifetime Achievement Award too. That I fucking hope so. I goddamn well hope so. But, but that does kind of surprise me that there's no David Fincher on here. I might also you figure anyone associated with Madonna is going to get. But well, I mean, you think of all of the really iconic late '80s, early '90s MTV videos, and they're pretty much all David Fincher. But I mean, like, even just on the Madonna Association alone, you figure you get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But no Michelle Gondry, though. That's MTV. How far are you falling? How far are you falling? So, Fix, if I if I had to put you on the spot, your favorite Duran Duran music video, we're talking all about their different videos and the shit they inform. And frankly, if you're talking about music video bands, there really isn't too many better. You have a, a wide range here, even if they're directed by a familiar crop of folks. What do you got? Uh, if not Rio, I'm going with Wild Boys. What does it for Wild Boys? Like, why? Why is it's it? It's insane. Why is it, it is. <laughs> it definitely is a wild. It it it, it corresponds to the uh, the topic matter. I mean, it's very um, fitting to be Russell Mulcahy's last Duran Duran video. It is, yeah. That's that's actually like a nice way to think of it too. Like that's like kind of like his lasting, like final tribute to the the image he helped manicure for this band and how he helped turn them into the first video band in the way we understand it. Also, how old do you think Russell Mulcahy is? Ooh. That's a good question. Um, all right. Uh, I will say sixty-five, sixty-three. Oh, that was close. It was in two years. It's so, two- I mean, his first video though, "I'm Stranded by the Saints," nineteen seventy-seven. So he's twenty-four then. Then, uh, video killed the radio star is I think seventy-nine, right? Yeah. yeah. And going back to this, it's not like this dude like. This dude's genius was obvious to other people because when you hear the dudes from Duran Duran talk about – they talk about meeting Russell Mulcahy for the first time and seeing his storyboards. And keep in mind, if you've seen the video for Planet Earth, you know how cheese in early 80s it looks. But they talk about seeing his storyboards and just thinking like, oh my god, like this guy's on some other shit. Like he's he's the dude that has the visual he has the vision to match Simon's lyrics, basically. And and we're gonna compare them a lot, but it's like when you hear Depeche Mode talk about Anton Corbin. Yeah, I mean that's actually a great 
That's a great analog, actually. Because he he ended up having even a bigger role yeah. for them and being associated with them for their whole careers after after they hooked up in uh, 86. So as, as much as I love the girls on film video and the night mix, as mentioned, as a, you know, the hornier and disgusting folk with this podcast. Bix, I mean, how do you, how do you feel about the fact that it, like, I just, I, I love the chauffeur so much. Why do you, why, why do you think I'm the, the kind of dude? The chauffeur is a great, I mean, I, but here's I would the say it's undisputably their best album track. I, I think it's, I think it's the best Duran Duran track. I think it's their best video. I think it's, I think it's their best everything. Bix, I mean, why, why do you think it gets me so much? Why does it get you? What, what, because to me, like this is one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about the band on the whole is I always feel like even if you like Duran Duran, if you really like Duran Duran, I always feel like the chauffeur is a secret handshake. Um, I can buy that. It's uh, what would be the best way to put this? It strips them of all of the bullshit surrounding Duran Duran. Yeah, and it, it like you know, it, knowing more about the song now, it makes me love it even more. Because, like I said um, before this week, you know, like I loved Duran Duran. There's a reason we're doing this, but I did like no, I didn't. I didn't know that like that was the song in Simon Lebon's poetry book that greased the wheels into him getting into Duran Duran. For instance, I didn't know that kind of thing. To me, it was just. That's my favorite Duran Duran song. That's my favorite Duran Duran video. I really like the film The Night Porter. I deeply appreciate the way that them and Ian Eames kind of took off the the climax of the film for the video. And it just always appealed to me. And the thing I liked about it is it got to the heart of like what we're talking about. The idea of people think Duran Duran is this kind of band. But you watch the like, – you listen to the chauffeur. You watch the video for the chauffeur and you just know it's not – this is not your little sister's 1983 band. This is a legitimate rock and roll band who even if they, they got disco bass grooves, even if they got over-the-top synthesizers, even if they did an overproduced Bond theme, which we still need to talk about, they're like a legitimate rock and roll band. And like the chauffeur to me has always been like that kind of artifact where you can hold up and be like, this is actually what Duran Duran are about. It's not it's not about hungry like the wolf. It's not Simon Le Bon flipping over the table. It's not, you know, you know, uh, mouth is alive with juices like wine. This is what it's about. I would have I would also throw in it's not Simon blowing the note at Live Aid. <laughs> Because that's another one of those, like, uh, LOL Duran Duran type of things. Like, oh, well, look look at them. I mean, they can't be good. This happened. Like, like no one's ever fucked up live. Well, also, I mean, never mind that he's singing without monitoring at at an outdoor stadium. Like, it's it's a miracle that that did not happen many times throughout Live Aid on both. Uh, yeah, sides of the Atlantic multiple Ocean. sites. Yeah, exactly. So, Bex, watching watching the show for a video, like like so, I asked you before we did this if you'd ever seen the the film The Night Porter, and, and you hadn't. So, no. as, as someone who hasn't seen The Night Porter, um, 
what do you think about the chauffeur video? Why do you like it or dislike it or to be honest? Yes. I mean it looks like an Anton Corp and video. <laughs> So, for those who don't know, uh, The Night Porter is a film, uh, I believe, 1974, directed by uh, Liliana Cavani. And a lot of Liliana Cavani's work is um, post-World War II reconciliation with a heavy emphasis on kind of the, the erotic and female self. So, The Night Porter, essentially, you have... Uh, Dick Bogard playing a former SS officer who post-Holocaust has run away to Vienna and is now a a night porter in a hotel in Austria. And eventually he stumbles upon Charlotte Rampling, who is now married to a famous composer, but is kind of his former sadomasochistic slave from back in one of their SS camps during the Holocaust. And throughout her stay at the hotel, it kind of devolves into a thing where both of them, you know, in, in spite of in spite of his desire to stay undetected and in spite of his desire to like live life again and live light in the daylight and in spite of her desire to have a real life outside of the tragedy and trauma of the Holocaust, they fall into a bizarre sadomastic masochistic relationship and kind of undo one another. I tremendously love the night Porter. I know if you look at film criticism, there's, you know, like a lot of people feel like the, there are definitely things about the movie that are not perfect. There are things about like the costuming and some things about the way some scenes are shot that are strange, but I think there's a real legitimacy to taking a, Historically, personally trying event and looking at how it affects, you know, individuals ability to go on afterwards. I tremendously, tremendously love the film. Um, And they do a very good job at taking kind of the climactic elements of the film, most notably Charlotte Rampling's inspirational titless dance at the end and turning it into a video but when I watch the video for the chauffeur, it's just up until the car park scene, nothing happens. It's not it's not Rio. They're not on a yacht. It's not girls on a film. Or girls on film, there's not, you know, like women everywhere in states of undrafts. There's just this weird kind of crippling anxiety up until you get to the car park and see them dance it out in this bizarre and surreal fashion. The chauffeur to me is just everything that Duran Duran are all about that people who don't listen to them on a regular basis or kind of like don't do the deep dive don't get. It's yes. everything. And on that note, I found the whole Moby post, which is kind of on this whole topic, so I think it's worth a read here. Do it. So this is from August 31st, 2003. Over 13 years ago. Moby. So the other night, I went to see Duran Duran at the old Ritz, currently Webster Hall, and they were great. How could they not be great? A boy band slash pop band who wrote their own great songs and dressed themselves and played their own instruments very well, very well, I might add. Seems kind of novel now in a world where we just accept 
the fact that most musicians don't write their own songs and don't dress themselves and don't play instruments. But how could Duran Duran not be great, I ask? They wrote Planet Earth and Girls on Film and Save a Prayer and Ordinary World and The Reflex and Wild Boys and Rio and etc., etc. And they were cursed by what we can call the Bee Gees curse, which is write amazing songs, sell tons of records, and consequently incur the wrath or disinterest of the rock-obsessed critical establishment. Listen to Planet Earth or Stayin' Alive. Amazing songs with great atmosphere and great musicianship, but the fact that they were very successful and stylized means that the critics never took them seriously, which they should have. If the critics had championed the likes of the Bee Gees and Duran Duran and Cheek and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, we would actually uh, we would certainly be living in a musically superior world to the one in which we're now living. So now getting to the point. I actually went to see Duran Duran when they first played at the Ritz, before it became the old Ritz, when they first played there in the 80s, I think. But I couldn't get in because it was sold out, and I was just a little kid with no ticket who had taken Metro North in from Connecticut, and who then went and played video games on the corner of St. Mark's and First Avenue, an old game called Paperboy, to be exact. So it was kind of nice to come back 20 years later to the same venue and actually be allowed in. So, thanks. Moby. Beautiful symmetry as well that he shout outs Sheik, obviously knowing that the drummer Tony Thompson would go on to be a part of Power Station with Well, not Manana. just that. Well, well not I just... mean, but but also the fact that Sheik directly not even just like the Power Station crossover, they directly inspired Duran Duran. Well, I mean it's not just that. So you've got um why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? The the guitar player. I I know who he is, so I'm just my brain's not working. The one of Sheik or Duran Duran? From Sheik. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, So, you know, he ends up producing a good bit for Duran Duran, and their whole line early on was that they wanted to be some kind of cross between the Sex Pistols and Sheik. That was what they wanted to be. And I don't know if they'd say they succeeded at that, because I it's a weird combination. I don't know if that's what it is. <laughs> but I think they certainly succeeded at kind of melding chic into their own view, into their own uh, style. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, don't you just love just how much Nile Rodgers adores them and always has? But meanwhile, the critics are like, uh, they're, they're blah, 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 Anglo disco. <laughs> Well, but I from fucking chic. This is <laughs> loves them and is producing them and all that. Like, gee, like is... oh, like the. <laughs> but this is this is when I kind of saw through the bullshit of music criticism. Like this, like Duran Duran were important for me as a, as like a teenager when I was like you know twelve thirteen when I realized like a lot of the bands that I loved, especially like the Deftones. Like it was it was incredibly important for me getting into the Deftones. Because it was like it was like a life affirming thing when I found out that all these bands that I'd cribbed off my parents' cassette tapes were things that hit Chino Marino in the heart. You know what I mean? When when like the dude who like is supposed to be the, the front man of my favorite band gets out was like, Yeah, Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, the cure, like this is what I care about. It was you know, it was impactful. So it was enormously important for me realizing that, like, it said a lot to me even at a young age 
that musicians I loved and was into loved Duran Duran and Robert Criscow can go with a bag of dicks. Like just this old, this old angry man writing for the village voice. Like I don't give a shit. Like uh, because to that point, my whole thing was like, I want, I want to care about the music that matters. I want to know like, what what are the top 200 albums ever? I want to listen to all of them. I want to know, I want to know all the things about all the important artists. And then I got to a point where I just realized like, no, I want to be in a music that I like. And it, the, people like Robert Criscow don't matter it doesn't matter if they gave him you know, gave him a, a bomb or a dud in the paz and jot pole of 1982 yeah i just looked up because i've always been struck by even though it was like it was helpful and that my sister owned a copy and i would always consult it i we i said this to... shit earlier and you tried to say no by the way i told you digging through your sister's records Continue. no i was gonna no no no. that's not what i'm talking about <laughs> spins alternative record guide Okay. One of the contributors who were consulted for the book, Robert Criscow. I was of course. Just, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, it's included uh, Ann Powers, Rob Sheffield, Simon Reynolds, uh, Michael Azarad, and Robert Criscow. Jeez, I mean, of the I not as familiar with Ann Powers or Michael Azarad, but geez, Rob Sheffield and Robert Criscow. I almost, dude. I almost feel like we should do a show. Where we just like read all the Robert Criscow stuff and just guess how he's going to feel about things. Because, like I said, dude, he is—I want to say like he's the original hipster doofus. But all the things that people think about music critics today are things that like Robert Criscow laid the foundation for like thirty plus years ago. Music critics, but all even even to a point, other stuff like film criticism, because yeah, people like Robert Criscow are the reasons that people like Armand White exist. <laughs> I was I was I, I would have left it like at like the region the vil- the reason the village voice exists, but like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could take it there. Hey, Armand White, his whole thing is like being a counter to traditional film criticism. I mean, he's an idiot, but his heart is in the right place. That is that is like a fundamental distinction that I think is important is it never, you know, throughout decades of reading his music criticism, I never feel like Robert Criscow is like intentionally trolling me. Like I feel like he may be misguided in some cases and maybe kind of doing some kind of bizarre hipster cheerleading for the thing that like he thinks is next and trying to kind of like trend watch and anticipate and, you know, s- s- sort of keep a, a certain kind of veneer about his criticism but i never feel like i'm being intentionally trolled like he's i do feel me but he i think he still feels that he's dictating from on above because he's smarter than me is what he feels yeah so i mean even if he's arrogant at least he's earnest whereas someone like armand white is a dick <laughs> but he, it's a response to him feeling that film criticism as we know it is bullshit yeah i mean that's yeah it's, that's a great distinction to make you know what I mean? It's like his thing of worshiping Steven Spielberg. It's like, hey, but you know, Steven Spielberg's work as a whole, it's like, hey, still, Steven Spielberg's pretty badass. I mean, not everything is perfect, but you can he does, see why he does he goes have the weakest time. segment in the Twilight Zone movie by Miles, and that and that includes a segment where Vic Morrow and two children died. 
Is that the worst thing you can say about Steven Spielberg? He has he has the worst segment in a movie where three people die and two were children. I sure. Is, is that even an appropriate thing to say? Are you are you censoring me, Bix? No, I'm not. Uh, but and one thing with that spin alternative record guy too, the one of the things that sticks out because that that book, like I've disregarded a lot of it, like because as I got older and I get into more stuff on my own, it's like this book's kind of bullshit. Like, okay, for example, like I remember one time I was like, okay, oh, I'm curious what they think of of the Sundays albums. I like the Sundays. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm not using the index because the book's pretty much in. Yeah, order anyway, alphabetical order anyway. I'm looking, I'm like, wait, I don't see them. I'm like, go to the index. I'm like, wait, wait, what happened here? They threw the Sundays and the Cranberries together as if they were the same band. Not not like they <laughs> thought they were factually, but it's like, eh, Jangle Pop sung by a woman from the United Kingdom. Eh, same shit, whatever. Never I mean... mind that you're going to be so weirdly dismissive about two bands as awesome as the Sundays and the Cranberries. But what? And it has the whole also like throwing stuff into alternative, you know, the alternative music vein or rock vein, which is like, okay, look, I get throwing rap in there. It's not, this is not an anti-rap thing. And obviously I wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, yeah. I was going to, I was going to say the first base, but it's like, I'm not reading spins alternative record guide for, rap picks <laughs> you know what i mean yeah you got me right and i mean it's like nothing against fela cootie but i'm not reading spin's alternative record guide to hear about him either <laughs> i mean i'm sure that um crap what was what was the one of his bands called africa 70 <laughs> Africa Seventy. i mean i've listened to some fela cootie i like fela cootie but i'm not reading spin's alternative record guide for him but back to Duran Duran. Um, <laughs> can, I also, can I also say if I had to bet on how many episodes we go before we're going to feel a cootie reference, I would have guessed deeper than three. Okay. But, dude, this is this is the kind of surprising podcast we do. It's invigorating. <laughs> so where do we want to go? Do we want to do like just a quick look through the various albums, I guess, is our next thing? Or Yeah. We want, to, we want to do that at least a little bit. Yeah, because here's the thing. It's it's entirely possible. I think I think one thing that we always have to be mindful of doing this podcast is there's certain kind of topics that we hit that we expect people to not have full blown fluency with. You know, we don't expect to like you know launch our initial episode and like you know we're not going to be courting people who know everything about the life of James Hydrick and how horrific and traumatizing this man's life was. And he escaped from prison three times and how he became the most preeminent, self-taught, martial artist, pseudo-telekinetic child molester, prison rights advocate in the history of time. We could never anticipate that. You know how you know he's not really te- uh, telekinetic? <laughs> he would have gotten that? away with being a child molester. <laughs> I'm sorry. Fuck. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I'm starting to have second thoughts about that. Wicked, oh, wicked, baby. This is 
We had to take a quick break because um, our brains broke just there. You, you broke the extra brain in my. <laughs> you broke the extra bone in my brain. In a yeah, bat. I had to fly to Toronto to fix the extra bone in your brain. I glued it together <laughs> using the ink from my uh, tentacle. I, sometimes, sometimes Bix, I think that like you're the, you know, the tamer of the two and whatever, and then you break me in a way that lets lets me know and reveals to me that you're you're just as awful as I am. It's like the Barney Miller episode. All in one. It just no. It, le- it lets me know how like truly impassioned and cruel your soul is. Speaking of impassioned and cruel, well, um, Duran Duran. I mean, I mean, I guess all of these albums at some point have gotten some kind of bad reviews. Now that we, after what we talked about with this, but let's go through some of these. I mean, not everyone is intimately familiar with all of these. Some of the, I guess, we'll go over the more well-known and more famous albums quicker to some point okay so the oh because i mean here's the thing it's like it's it's like we talk about with this kind of stuff you know we go through like law and order and we go more in the zeitgeist yeah i mean not only is it more in the zeitgeist but even as we go through like i think it's like a good example of people know law and order but we're going through on a level where we're making like episode by episode extractions about the character sketches of various junior ADAs. There's a level of deep dive that like one thing I've learned in life is you can never assume that everyone knows the shit you're talking about, especially if you're a weirdo like you and me and you're, you're always like doing these kind of like deep dives on culture. Mm -hmm. So inevitably there's some people listening to this who they know, I mean, they know that like, you know, um uh, what would what's the the 97 track electric barbarella is that the oh uh from what is that Medazland? Yeah, yeah yeah so like there's some people on that tip who know like oh late era duran duran like jordan and Biggs got me like we're duran duran fans i know that like they still got hits in 97 2015 but inevitably there are people listening to this who've listened to all of this who are Still haven't seen the video for Rio or something like that. Sure. Sure. Okay. So the first self-titled album, the debut, uh, the original, because they have two self-titled albums. Uh, where are you on the, I mean, because it's a great album. I feel like it does kind of peter out a little bit. Like it could be a, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, there's something a little off about, about it. Like, it's not quite as well-rounded as some of the later albums. 
so I got I got the the actual like Duran Duran album later. Um, when I fell in love with Duran Duran, owing to the age I was at, when I bought the CD, I bought Decade, so I could have all the hits at once. Yes. But going back, um, I love the original album. I mean, it, oh. no, I'm saying it's a great album, but it's not in terms of like song for song consistency. It's not quite a Rio or even a Seven of the Ragged Tiger. I might give it as good as I can't give it the level of Rio. I might give it seven. The Ragged Tiger. There's a lot of songs I really enjoy oh, yeah. on, on the original album. Um, also, I mentioned my Deftones love earlier. Um, obviously, hearing the Deftones cover of the Chauffeur really opened my eyes to how great Duran Duran were. But their cover of Nightboat as well made Nightboat one of my all-time favorite Duran Duran songs. So hearing that, even on a cassette was huge for me and frankly there is very few albums in life for me that start as well as girl on, girls on film and planet on earth and even anyone thing, out there uh, yeah even if you want to extend it to like you know three tracks deep that's a that's a ferocious way to start an album and something we haven't even really hit on is the extent to which you know we're talking about girls on film and planet earth but one of the things that makes Duran Duran so timeless, so great, so prescient is the fact that they're one of these bands with their producers that realize the value of – and again, not to offend you, I don't want to call it like remix culture. But the idea of having multiple mixes of a track to release a single, a club version, a version for the music lover who bought the LP – all this kind of stuff. And this like this to me is an essential part of being a Duran Duran fan. Right. And if you if you're a Duran Duran fan, it like to me it is you know, it's kind of like the condition of hardcore Duran Duran fanhood that you have hard opinions about like like for instance, like I don't like I don't like the extended mix of Save a Prayer because I don't like feel like it adds anything, for instance. But I love the. Is that the a US ni- mix? Because I have the UK 12 inch of that and the 12, UK 12 inch is just the 7 inch mix. I, it's definitely different. Okay, so there's. Is that a US 12 inch then, I guess? I think it's a US 12 inch then. And then you have like weird things like. Well, uh, I mean, there's all those. Weird, well, the US version of Rio is really weird anyway, because the US, the US vinyl of Rio um, and maybe even one of the early CDs is like completely different mixes of everything. Yeah, and so even going back to this, like think about you see the video, you see the video for the reflex, and the 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 video version, it's the remix version, and not the actual album version. This is just part and parcel of Duran Duran. Yes. So the, uh, not, whether not you're Nile Rogers singles mix, yeah, yeah. So like whether you're a collector or not. Um, like to me, that's kind of like the hardcore Duran Duran imperative. The idea, and like it very much starts with the self-titled album. The idea of clearly demarcating. We got some great songs, but there's actually extended mixes that are even better. And the the, the extent to which they're ahead of remix culture, like them bands like Depeche Mode, uh, industrial bands to come, New Order. New Order, absolutely. They're just so far ahead of the time. But Bix, like something you pointed out to me before we started this, it's they're playing live in the studio. 
at the end of the day, it's not it's not that some DJ heard this and chopped it up. It's that they It's they, not even that they chopped it up themselves like Depeche Mode did for a lot of their stuff through like the uh, early 90s. They played it for 15 minutes in the studio and they recorded it that way and mixed it that way. Which is I mean, you may not think that makes a huge difference, but if you've never heard a night mix of a Duran Duran song, oh boy, does it make a difference. Yeah, I mean, as great and amazing a song as Girls on Film is, the night version is ten times better. The night the night version of Girls on Film is why we were doing this. Yes. Like I said right off the top, that's the thing when you were like, you know what the best Depeche or you excuse me, you know what the best Duran Duran song is? And I said, Well, the chauffeur is my favorite song, but and we shared the mind shape. Because there's no way you could possibly hear this band's canon and hear the night mix of Girls on Film and not just think, oh my god, what a tour de force. The first three seconds of John Taylor's baseline. It's e- it's easily the best showcase of John Taylor as a bassist in their entire catalog and think of the ground that covers. Also, think about the way he peeled out on those cops. <laughs> That's dude, that's gonna be my move now if I ever get pulled over by the police. Just wait for them to go back to the car and just roll out super casual and then blow another stop sign. Ever everything labeled as night version is must listen. Absolutely. There is no night mix of anything Duran Duran related that isn't incredible. So mix the last thing I think we need to touch on. And we te- we te- like I've teased it multiple times. In general. Independent of our fine folks in Duran Duran, which, by the way, how adorable is it that another one of the f- clubs they frequented in Birmingham was called uh, uh, um, Thumbarella? Mm-hmm. And they obviously named their band after Thumbarella, Mr. You know, Dr. Duran Duran. Yeah. Everything, everything about this band, so homespun. But they go on to become big enough in 1983. They get to do a James Bond theme. How do you feel about View to a Kill as a movie? How do you feel about View to a Kill as a Bond theme? I don't know if I've ever seen the movie. Now that I think about it. Really? No. Christopher Walken and Grace Jones together. You've never been intrigued. Mm, I kind of have. I just haven't seen it. Again, I reiterate. Christopher Walken, Grace Jones. If you're talking, you know explosive 80s combinations to and I me. love that we're talking about the two best flat tops ever back to back holy shit I didn't even realize that we were doing that also I mean this may dovetail into some Ghostbusters shit in the future since originally you know you know Grace Jones was originally supposed to be Gozer the Gozerian I think I knew that actually the yeah the, the, the chick they chose the whole look or whatever apparently negotiations didn't work out with Grace Jones but they still kept like the flat top look but originally the the look for Gozer the Gozerian in the original Ghostbusters was intended to be entirely based on Grace Jones so um, Grace Jones um, not like girls on film in its own right probably the first time I saw View to a Kill probably uh, maybe maybe one of the first times I ever had a confused boner in my life possibly <laughs> Um. So you've never seen a video kill? No, I've seen the video, of course. 
Okay, obviously, I mean, I didn't. I, I mean, I anticipate you saw the video, but you never seen the movie. That said, thinking about it as a Bond theme, how do you size it up? Because obviously, you've heard other James Bond themes in your life. Hmm. I'm assuming you've heard some Shirley Bassey. Uh, yes, I've heard "Live and Let Die." Obviously. Um. <laughs> uh, for what it's trying to be, I think it's good. All right, I think you're. I think it's a better Duran Duran song than it is a James Bond theme. I think it's an exquisite example of both. One, like that's actually what I love about it the most. One, I don't think it's a bad James Bond theme. I'm just saying I think it's better as a Duran Duran song than it is a James Bond theme. But that's why that's why I actually love A View to a Kill so much. Uh, like I actually like the movie. It, oh, it's okay, I get what you're saying because even with the Alberto Broccoli or whatever his name is <laughs> breathing down their necks. They still came out with a song that's pretty true to them. Yeah, like it. It, it is fundamental. Like it is, it is the best of both worlds, because the the letdown with Bond themes when you have pop musicians do it, and there's been lots of pop musicians that I love. Like, dude, I love Madonna. Die another day or whatever her shit was was terrible. I love garbage. I, Shirley Manson was like another early music video sexual awakening for me as a young child and their bond theme is terrible a view to a kill is the most it is the most pop james bond theme by far it is you listen to it if you remove it from the james bond context it is unmistakably a duran duran song whereas something like live and let die in terms of the instrumentation, the arrangements, etc., is much more James Bond theme than a Paul McCartney song. Correct. This song, it is the best blend of we've co-opted a pop band to do a James Bond theme. And they just ride they, they just they ride the fence the perfect way. They make a James Bond theme working with longtime uh, James Bond collaborator John Barry, who up to this point had done, he pretty much collaborated on every single James Bond theme. I think. I'm sorry, I was thinking of the creator or, or who was who was Broccoli, the producer. Albert Broccoli is one on? of the producers. He's one of the producers. Yeah. Yeah, John okay. Barry. That's John Barry's the John dude. Barry. Yeah. yeah, he's the dude that arranged the original James Bond theme that you would know from Doctor No. With and, the uh, with the trademark Vic Flick guitar. Duna, Duna. Yeah, and then. I want to say like up until like the living daylights or something like that, like 87, he worked on every individual Bond theme. So whether, you know, whether it's Shirley Bassey or Debbie Harry or whoever, he's on the track. And famously going back to something we were laughing about with Nick Rhodes and him being like the pretty boy of the band and not being exactly the most musically entrepreneurial John Barry famously made like Nick Rhodes have a bit of a breakdown during the view to a kill sessions because he challenged all the other musicians and Duran Duran. They were very much up to whatever John Barry said. And Nick Rhodes openly griped at him and said, like, why do I have to do this? And and John Barry basically looked in his face and said, like, yo, I work with Shirley Bassey. And that was just good enough. Just speaking of Nick Rhodes. Uh, there is an episode of Classic Albums, this show that's aired on VH1 and BBC, and I guess it's a BBC production, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there is an episode about the Rio album, and 
it's well worth watching. You can get the DVD pretty cheap. It's also available online in certain places if you do some digging. <laughs> but what's good about this episode, Bix? What makes it what makes it especially fantastic? I mean, there's just a lot of yeah, cool man. just studio details and them breaking down the multi tracks of everything and stuff like that. And then as we were watching it earlier in preparation, we get up to the part about Save a Prayer. So again, to reemphasize, if you're a Duran Duran novice, there's a lot of things going for this band. It's part of the reason that we're celebrating it. Roger Taylor is an incredible drummer, and somehow he was around these four other lunatics for multiple decades and didn't become an alcoholic drug addict, which is absolutely amazing. John Taylor is one of the greatest bassists in rock history. John Taylor is an absolute fucking maniac who definitely doesn't know how a traffic stop works. But his idea of how to craft a bass groove for a pop rock song is sensational. Andy Taylor, no one gives love to the actual guitar lines of Duran Duran, but everything works in concert. And we already sung the praises of Simon LeBon, not just his sweet, brummy singing voice, but the fact that he's... <laughs> the kind of lyricist that could only be born of half half a poetic heart and half a nose for a line of blow. But Nick Rhodes, synthesizers are still a big part of Duran Duran, but Bix, is it a fair appraisal to say that, especially in light of our research, <laughs> Nick Rhodes isn't exactly like the musical brain of this band. <laughs> He's clearly, I mean, he's a really talented keyboard player. And he does take claim for being part of the mixes on Rio. I started playing that too early by mistake. But Should we just go back or should we stop for now? No, he's he's very much the pretty one of the bunch. But um, Should I go back and play that again so we can actually hear it? Oh yeah, fuck it. So he's describing the sound and how he got to it. You know, the kind of like just bendy. Beginning. And this is what he says. This thing called a bender. <laughs> so now I didn't personally own a keyboard growing up. My sister did. It was not a synthesizer. It was just like a two hundred dollar Casio keyboard, like just you know a nice big Casio <laughs> keyboard. There was a and? knob on the left side called bend. <laughs> if that if you playing and you played with the knob it would do what dick roach just did <laughs> the best part of this documentary too is they go to i wouldn't say painstaking lengths but they very nicely lay out a lot of the um technical abilities of the day that led them to be able to create this sound so and they talked to roger taylor and roger taylor like they talk about specifically hungry like the wolf and how they created the drum noises and how important it was to have background ambiance alongside the simmons electric drum kit a lot of this classic albums edition of rio is built around Really, the technology and the way they layered and combined these distinct Duran Duran sounds to make this classic album. But like I was kind of saying to you, Bix, when you watch a lot of classic albums, and the example I always use is if you've ever seen the VH1 classic albums of uh, Deep Purple's Machine Head. 
you expect to get like a lot of the guitar player, but there's something to be said for the synthesizer auteur that, you know, speaks to the heart of music. So I always use the Machine Head example because in the VH1 classic albums about Machine Head, you get a lot of Richie Blackmore, the lead guitar player of Deep Purple, noodling around on his guitar and basically just like acting like a Dungeons and Dragons dork and talking about like wyverns and werewolves and shit. But most of the actual musical seriousness is done by John Lord, the keyboardist. So and to me, it's a fair, it's a fairly familiar pattern to watch a classic albums and have the synthesizer keyboard dude try to lay it out. But there's such a built-in laugh when it's Nick Rhodes and you do a bit of research and realize like he's the non-musician in the band and like the pretty girly face. And even in reading the stuff about Rio, it seems like he went out of his way to be the dude in the mixing sessions just so they would make fun of him less for not being a shitty musician. And watching the classic albums, Simon and the Taylors are the ones who explain things better. Of course, because he's clearly a shitty musician. He's clearly, you know, and people always like have like, the, oh, it's, it's always the drummer. The drummer is supposed to be like, oh, the drummer. Nick Rhodes is a beautiful, pretty face for Duran Duran, but he is definitely the pretty face of Duran Duran. All right, so before we finish up, okay, we covered Rio. We kind of covered we covered the debut. We covered Seven the Ragged Tiger, I think, enough over the course of the show. Um, Everything's underrated. Like, really, that's the long and short of this. Duran Duran, Rio, Seven the Ragged Tiger, all great albums. Everything after that, legitimately underrated. You know, some some albums, like, like Liberty, for instance, maybe only got serious as a banger. But... Every album's got a little something for you, and you would never imagine that, like, you you mentioned Bedazzland earlier. You'd never imagine, like, a 1997 Duran Duran album would have something to offer you, or, heaven forbid, last year's Paper Gods. These dudes still turn out fantastic rock and roll music. Yeah, I mean, I'm partial to All You Need Is Now, the next most recent one before Paper Gods. More than that, I mean that's that's a great album, and it's it's closer to like the earlier stuff, but still more current sounding. And uh, like Mark Ronson did a really good job producing, as he and, does. And I I kind of felt bad that they didn't. I was disappointed that they didn't bring him back. But I mean that's just a really good album and a good mix of like their different types of sounds. Like you have you know your more popular stuff, and then you have something like. The Man Who Stole the Leopard, which is more of a chauffeur-sounding sta- song. Mm-hmm. But before we go, the one thing I think we need to talk about specifically as probably the most overall underrated album is Big Thing. We both very much love The Big Thing, and it is not exactly a critically well-received album. Oh, we both lo- love The Big Thing? You have the biggest dick I've ever seen on a man. Not that oh, big boy. thing. Oh, oh boy, oh boy! Uh, <laughs> but seriously though, I, I apologize. I'd like no, to apologize just... to my wife Nancy. <laughs> seriously though, I very much love the big thing. And going back to this kind of dynamic, I wasn't aware until I got older. You know what I mean? That this era of Duran Duran was looked on with scorn. Like I didn't realize 
you know, I didn't realize after 1984, people doubted their commitment to Sparkle Motion. Well, the original lineup kind of starts to split up and all that, and it's not just that. But if you look at reviews and stuff, well, don't look. What do you think the rating uh, All Music's reviewer gave to, uh, what do you think is the rating that their reviewer gave to Big Thing? Oh, Jesus. All right, so All Music's are the five stars, right? Yes. That sort of thing. Um... If you're asking like that, it's got to be – I was going to say two, but if you're asking, it's got to be like one or one and a half or something, right? One and a half stars. Fucking Jesus. That's ridiculous. I don't want your love. All she wants is – Drug. The title track, big thing. This is ridiculous. Too Late Marlene. Do You Believe in Shame? Palomino. It's the same thing as Seven the Ragged Tiger, man. Everyone's just hating. This is garbage. In this case, though, there's clearly a resistance to the style shift with a lot of this album, especially uh, All She Wants Is, which is easily the most like club-style song they've done, up to that point at least. And, you know, other than the song called Girls on Film, where everyone takes their clothes off and a music video explicitly made for... Nightclubs. You know what I mean. Yeah, I know. No, I'm talking about the original, the regular single yes, album yeah, version. Yeah. I'm not. I mean, it's still you know, it's done differently from how the people are doing it. But twelve inch, a twelve inch is still a twelve inch. I'm just saying it's a ridiculous thing to hold against a band that's been doing. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, yes. I misunderstood what you were saying. Yes, of course. And it's just another like, oh, look at these silly like poncy white British dudes. Trying to make dance music. Bunch of imperialist like, brats. How dare they? Imperialist brats, dude. Fuck Robert Criscow. Which all music reviewer is this, does it say? Yeah, can we can we out someone? This is Mike DeGagney. Mike DeGagney's one point five star review of the big thing can fuck off. In light of that, Bix. If there's anyone listening to this who, you know, somehow hasn't been convinced. Okay, wait, I have to read you this quote. Oh, do go. Duran Duran was now making music apropos for seedy burlesque parlors while surrendering their pop roots, which many fans just couldn't get used to. Big thing is short on inviting melodies, attractive rhythms, hooks of any or hooks of any sort. Instead, the band opted for femme fatale lyrics and emotionless rhythms lost in no man's land of dance, club, pop, slash rock. Emotionless rhythms. Uh, yes, those emotionless rhythms most fit for the people with the extra bones in their heads. <laughs> clearly. Never mind the emotionless rhythms. Have you... Oh, they're making music for the club. Have you even listened to this band? One of the essential things that we've talked about that this, makes the Duran Duran album came out in 1988, late 1988. Again, one of the essential things we've talked about that makes this band this band is that they're just indescribably horny. In what way is that out of play with the club scene in 1988? Uh, I don't know. It's just it's just garbage, dude. Like, it, and this is the whole reason that that I I felt so convicted when you brought up the idea. It's like I can't think, dude. Never mind a band. 
I can't think of any artistic outfit where they are more readily superficially misunderstood right off the bat than Duran Duran. I can't think of an act, be it musician, artist, actor, whatever, any kind of artiste, someone that you bring up and on the face, you know what someone's position is going to be, you know how you're going to be challenged, and you know how off base their standard trite refrain is going to be. It's the same thing every time, and that's that's why we got to do the show. Even the Bee Gees, I mean, they were a disco band when disco was big, and they just got thrown out with everyone else when there was the disco rebe- disco rebellion or whatever you want to, you know, anti-disco movement is the better way to put it, I guess. Disco rebellion sounds wrong. The Bee Gees, a little before my time. I appreciate where Moby's coming from. But I don't have that first-hand connection. What I do have is that first-hand connection with Duran Duran. And it was incredibly exciting and life-affirming to go back through this last week, do the deep dive, watch all this stuff, do the research. If there's, like, of all the bands I already love to go back and not just, like, rediscover a love for, but double down on my love for and for the reasons that we're talking about, to stand in, you know, fist-held rebellion against these motherfuckers who try to act like Duran Duran's your, you know, your older sister's band from 1983, it's garbage. Not only is it not remotely true, it's just this is the band we need to stand up for. Because like we talked about time and time again, I can't think of a band where once you even dig slightly below the surface – once you go one layer deeper than Simon LeBond flipping the table in Hungry Like the Wolf, you see what this band's about. The rich instrumentation, the oh, layering. Me somewhere to chime in. I apologize. <laughs> no, I mean, like by all means, do. It's just this is this is the band. Like you couldn't have chosen something better, Bix. I think they've had pretty much a turnaround. But I don't know how much that is for people who like were like, oh, fuck those guys. Or if it's just more young people discovering them. We can only hope for the better, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we it's, can clear, only, it's clearly trending upwards. We can only do we can only do our little bit through our own podcast, right? Yeah. Our, and our, how, our probably still overly long podcast. And how can people get that? Oh, yes. If you stumbled onto this somehow and... Uh, you want to know the proper way to get it or whatever, of course, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on just about everywhere you can get a podcast. If you want to go directly to our website, that is twoscoopspod.com, spelled either way, but officially twoscoopspod.com. Uh, one more time with the Patreon and the Amazon, I guess. Always. Patreon. Patreon. Get us paid. Yeah, patreon.com slash scoops for our bonus shows which are available if you donate $5 or more a month and if you just want to help out in some other way without spending anything extra or whatever our Amazon referral URL is tinyurl.com slash two scoops Amazon and uh, I guess Twitter is the last thing to go with then uh, you want to handle that 
at Jordan Breen for me, J-O-R-D-A-N-B-R-E-E-N for your homie David Bixen span at David Bix, D-A-V-I-D-B-I-X. And you can get the whole show at Two Scoops Pod at Two Scoops Pod well, on Twitter. Well, at T-W-O Scoops Pod. Yeah, T-W-O Scoops Pod. Let me be clear. And uh, is, that the, is that the last of our sweep in? It better be. May I, may I be poetic? Sure. Say it with me. And the sun drips down, betting heavy behind. You caught me at the wrong moment. And the droning engine throbs in time. Oh, my brain just broke. I'm sorry. And the sun drips down, betting heavy behind. The front of your dress all shadowy lined. And the droning engine throbs in time with your beating heart. heart. Sing Blue Silver, Bix. Sing Blue Blue Silver. Silver. Sing Blue Silver. Till next time. What?